You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Devings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello and welcome to episode 222 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. My name's Neville Bounds and welcome one and all. And uh, there's no Carlos uh, this week because he's got uh, well a better offer, Matt, <laughs> I believe. Is, is that right? Is that possible? Well, I, ha- I had heard a rumour he has indeed got a better offer. I think he's actually gone to a family wedding that he would have, I think, given half a chance, got out of if uh, he was uh, not given the three-line whip by his wife, uh, uh, not to so uh, yes he has had to he has had to leave us in charge so uh, I can't promise we're going to behave ourselves though Nev uh, no <laughs> I think the, all, the uh, all, all bets are off really aren't they but certainly uh, yes. uh, in order to keep some semblance of order uh, in the show uh, we are joined from the east coast the northeast coast of the United States by our favorite uncle the oh. main man Micah hello Micah how are you Hey, Nev. Great to see you. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. And uh, yes, here I am uh, back in Maine after a long trip up and down the East Coast of the United States. Yes, you've been a bit busy. We'll, we'll come on to that in a second. Uh, but also uh, joining us uh, from his home, I think, is uh, Owen. Owen, are you there? Yes, indeed. And uh, <laughs> I know the, the video might keep cutting out, so many apologies about that. But yeah, I'm coming to you from uh, just outside Stansted in a little town called Bishop Storford. Very nice, too. So what's everyone up to this week? Uh, Matt, have you been uh, a busy chap this week? Yeah, well, I, I've been, my, my my boss has been away, um, so I've sort of been been the office with the girls. Basically, we've been uh, sort of making sure the orders are all leaving on time, and lots of customizations this week. I've been doing nothing but print cards this week. I don't know quite why it's been so mad. And then I had a little little jolly to London actually for for Lambert's, uh, doing a bit of bus driving on the Thursday, so that was nice. Took a group to go and see Aladdin yesterday. So uh, Ooh, uh, I, one of the one of the things I'd like to go and see myself actually. So. Uh, uh, didn't quite get the opportunity to do that. Now, of course, uh, Nev, uh, it's, uh, I think it's worth mentioning that for quite a significant, what feels like forever, frankly, uh, you've been missing from uh, this little enterprise, and uh, I-, I believe you have a very good excuse. Well, I'm not sure if it's a good excuse, but it is an excuse. Um, yeah, the first week I was away, I just literally come back from Las Vegas that afternoon. It was not in a fit state to do anything <laughs> sensible or even not sensible. Unsensible, yes. Um, so that was the first week. And then uh, the small matter of June the 12th, which was a Tuesday, when Sue and I got married. And um, then on the Wednesday the 13th, we were off uh, to Portugal for a week on our honeymoon. Oh, very nice indeed. And the weather could not have been better. It was one of those sort of weeks where everything was just perfect. It's between 24 and 26 degrees, which was just nice. It wasn't too hot. But funny enough, 26 degrees in the Algarve feels a lot hotter than 26 degrees here for some reason. I don't know why. See, I, I reckon it's all about that humidity thing, isn't it? It's, I it's... think it is, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, very nice and uh, fully relaxed. And actually, we were so tired yesterday, um, not for reasons that you might think. But, but stop it, family just, show. Please, we, yes, on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But uh, it was, we just have done nothing 
recording the whole week and it's been brilliant we haven't done that for a very long time so uh, actually just doing housework or cleaning the car or whatever it was you know it was uh, was a bit a bit tired, exhausting so, uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely and of course what well, the one thing that you, that, that you don't take into consideration i suppose when you go when you go away of course it's lovely there's this hay fever thing that we all seem to be stuck with at the moment it's just quite nice not to go anywhere other than the united kingdom and and it's fine and, and i know owen you rather suffer from that as well it's <laughs> yeah it's a uh, not a nice time of year for me here in the uk um it's still never mind yeah i prefer it if, if I prefer it, when I'm flying. Yeah, I can say if, it, <laughs> if it's any consolation, of course, it's uh, we are now over over the worst of it. If you see what I mean, it's supposed to be getting better from now on. Everyone, good news. Still, yes. never mind. Fingers uh, crossed. Yes, yeah. I, I, I'm hoping for. I'm, I'm considering actually getting shares in Pirates. I think that's going to be the answer. Uh, <laughs> you know, here it's not so much hay fever as we have pine pollen, and the pine pollen is just. Uh, it comes out so thick that I have to wash the car every day. I have a car that's red. Now, if it was the color of, of Neville's car, you wouldn't even notice it. But it's bright yellow coating of oh powder all over my car every morning for the past month or so at this point. Wow. Mm. Now, uh, Micah, you've been a busy chap over the last week or so. Tell us about your, your travels, what you've been up to. Well, as uh, part of the Airplane Geeks, we uh, were invited down to the uh, Smithsonian Institution Udvar-Hazy Center uh, for the Innovations in Flight Family Day that takes place every day, the uh, every year rather, the Saturday uh, before Father's Day. And we did a not a live podcast, but we recorded our podcast from there for this week, and just had an amazing number of guests. Uh, we had uh, uh, an, an astronaut, uh, Adam Klein, who's a research pilot and astronaut at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, we had uh, one of the members of the Society of Women Engineers who was presenting there. We interviewed the pilot of a, a Grumman HU-16C Albatross flying boat. And uh, boy, was that just amazing what he's planning on doing with that. Uh, we talked to uh, an A320 pilot. We talked to an A380 pilot. Uh, we had a couple of uh, Civil Air Patrol cadets. These were uh, young ladies who were still in, in secondary school and high school. They were just sophomores, but our uh, cadet, one was a cadet lieutenant, the other a cadet tech sergeant. And uh, and they just did a marvelous job of, uh, of representing the Civil Air Patrol and what they do. Tanya Wyman showed up, and then uh, some other friends of ours were there, uh, Captain Rick Bell and uh, Dispatcher Mike and, uh, and Captain Nielsen. Good old Jeff. Captain Jeff was there. So, Captain Nielsen? Who? Captain Nielsen. <laughs> You've never heard of him before, no, have you? No, absolutely. <laughs> Who? <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, we interviewed all of those folks. And if you want to hear it, you can go to this week's uh, Airplane Geeks, episode 508. And it was the long, we almost got to the length of, a, of an airline pilot guy show. We what? Two, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's uh, two hours and 49 minutes worth of uh, interviews, plus all the fun that happened uh, afterwards uh, at the Red Robin at the big meetup. And uh, the only thing that was missing, well, there were a lot of people missing, but the biggest miss down there was... Um, was all our good friends from the UK who uh, couldn't make it this time, but maybe one day. Ah, oh, who knows? Yeah, maybe one day we'll make it out there. Sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, and it's an awesome museum, isn't it, uh, Micah? Having now been there uh, once uh, already, and uh, yeah, you could spend well d days in there. Actually, <laughs> one day is not enough, is it? Not at all. Not at all. And uh, we were fortunate enough because we had to set up. We were able to get in before anybody else was there. And uh, the biggest one of the 
biggest thrills of that museum for me this time, because I've been there a few times, was walking in at 8.30 in the morning, and Brian and I drove in, and in the back of the car, because she was also with us, was uh, our good friend Jen Niffer, and she had never seen the museum before. So to watch her walk in from a back door and see everything and see her eyes light up was just a delight, I've, I've got to say, to be able to watch somebody see it for the first time was just great. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Well, that's great, Micah. Thanks for sharing that with us. And uh, yeah, re really appreciate you uh, sending us the photos as well. It's uh, great seeing a few uh, people that we all know there. Yeah, well. lots of so, very, 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 very familiar faces in there. Craig yes. and all sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay, right. Well, let's start off the show then uh, with the uh, commercial segment for this week. So if you're ready, Matt. Goodness me, no, but yes. yes. <laughs> and if you're ready, Micah. All set. And if you're ready, Owen. I'm good to go. Let's go. Well, starting off this week uh, is a, well, I hope no one's having their lunch, dinner or breakfast at the moment because uh, this is on the local10.com website and it says that passengers begin vomiting as airline cabin fills with mist. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> um, it says that passengers on a delayed flight uh, in India began vomiting when a mist filled the plane's cabin after the pilot turned the air conditioning on full power. The Express reports that the pilot turned the AC on full in order to get passengers to depart the AirAsia flight, which was stuck in uh, Kolkata in India. The passengers initially refused as they were being asked to go outside during heavy rainstorm. Video from inside the plane shows mist from the air vents quickly filling the cabin, whilst the sound of passengers vomiting and coughing can be heard in the background. Okay. Uh, the flight, which was scheduled to uh, Bagdogra, was delayed for over four hours, and passengers said that they were given no explanation for the delay and were forced to disembark without any warning. AirAsia reportedly claimed that the air conditioning had been turned on as a result of high humidity, uh, but did not respond as to the health status of the passengers. Um, now, the, of course, the media have had an absolute field day with this uh, over the last couple of days, but frankly speaking, I see it as a bit of a non-event. I see it often, mainly on um, Airbus aircraft, actually, but uh, very often you, you're just sitting around uh, waiting to go and uh, you see some condensation coming out of the vents. Not quite to the extent that these people have experienced, I, I have to concede, but um, I, I don't think it's, um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's missed, it's condensation at the end of the day. I, I think it's not helped, essentially, I suppose, perhaps because there is, for whatever reason, an an awful smell that has accompanied it. Perhaps that's where some of this problem has, has sort of stemmed from. But uh, as you said, I mean, quite often when you get those extreme temperature changes, when when they first kick on, when the aircon first kicks in, obviously when everything's all been powered up for the first time. Of course, if it is quite sort of humid inside the cabin, of course you will see the vapor coming out because it's sort of hitting the air and reacting, isn't it? I mean, it's surely that's common sense, isn't it? <laughs> yes well it is but i think obviously there's some quite extremes of of temperature involved there yeah. but nonetheless that uh yeah it's not uh, not ideal but of course um i've noticed that um there was because there's been some video associated with this yeah. there's been all sorts of media outlets um 
uh, asking people for their information and can they use their video and would they like to talk about it? And, right. Well, you know, yeah. It's not exactly this came right. up uh, a couple of weeks ago on Leo Laporte's The Tech Guy show, and I happened to be listening when uh, Johnny Jett, who is uh, his travel expert, came on and started talking about this. And I called in and got in right away and explained this is something Captain Jeff talked about with APG. It's a regular occurrence, it's just condensation that happens. And what I really am curious about because it happens more often than we know. The vomiting that was reported, psychogenic illness, uh, which used to be called mass hysteria, but it's defined it currently, it's called psychogenic illness, right. and it passes on from one person to another. I can't imagine that maybe one person got scared, vomited from that, and it got passed on that someone got sick. It happens more often than we know. Yeah, absolutely right. But uh, there we are. So on to the next story. Who's going to do this one? Is this one for Owen, uh, Matt? Uh, no, no, this one would be for me. He's having to reboot oh, at the moment. Uh, <laughs> some minor technical glitches yeah. in Bishop Storford currently. So the Claire Herald is the head. Is the uh, document that we're reading this from. And the headline is Ryanair's Alicante service goes year round which is good news if you want to go out there. So there are there is further good news for Winter Sun Seekers today with Ryanair confirming that it will extend its Alicante Spain service to a year-round operation. Alicante uh, had been running as a summer season only service ceasing at the end of October, but this year it will run right through thanks to the strong interest in the service as confirmed by today's decision by Ryanair. So the historic the historic city of Alicante which is located on the Costa Bianca uh, is one of Spain's most popular tourism cities and a huge favourite with the Irish. <laughs> the because uh, they just get rain where they live. The uh, <laughs> the flights will operate Monday and Friday, departing Shannon at fifteen thirty and arriving in Alicante at nineteen twenty. The return flight departs Alicante at nineteen fifty five local time, arriving back at Shannon at twenty one fifty five. Seats are on sale now, everyone. Great news. Uh, Said uh, Shannon Airport Managing Director Andrew Murphy, this is really positive news. Alicante has uh, excellent climate and is a very popular destination year-round. Uh, or A lot of Irish people have holiday homes out there. So, it's a so there was a natural d demand for the service to go all year-round. Now that Ryanair and Shannon have delivered on our side of the bargain, it's up to the public to take advantage. He continued, this is keeping the momentum going in what's been a very positive year so far for Shannon. Our passenger numbers were up by 5% in the first quarter alone and we're having a very busy summer. All our markets are up and this is largely due to new services or increased frequencies on existing ones. So good news then I suppose. It's um, as I say coming from, from Shannon there so you go to Alicante all year round everyone. Oh, nice. <laughs> I've not actually been exactly to that uh, spot, but I've been in, in that part of the world. So yeah. it, is, uh, it is very nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah indeed. I, I dare say Owen has been there, um, but uh, we can't talk to him at the moment because he's fallen offline. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, have, you done, have, you, have you been to Europe much, Michael, other than, than to London? No, I, I've not. I've been to, uh, to, to the UK a couple of times, three times. I've been to Paris once, but other than that, have not made it anyplace else, but truly want to and, and hope to do that one day. Yeah, absolutely. So well, I think the next story uh, will be with you, if that's okay, Micah. 
fine by me. And it's one that I was following on Twitter the other day, and it's from the BBC, so it's got to be true. Oh, good old BBC. <laughs> British Airways cancels 2,000 incorrectly cheap tickets. More than 2,000 British Airways passengers have had their tickets canceled because the prices were too cheap, a travel agent has said. Travel up chief Ali Shah said he believes another five agencies also sold tickets through the airline's mistake. BA has apologized for the error on flights to Tel Aviv and Dubai, but refused to say how many were affected. Customers say they were angry that the tickets were not being honored. Mr. Shah said flights normally cost more than 200 pounds, were advertised for one pound plus airports taxes, which can be several hundred pounds, between 1745 British Standard Time, 11 June, and 11, and 11 a.m. the following day. The agent who said more than 2,000 of his customers have been affected said, quote, it's very cruel for the customers because they have booked these flights in good faith and expected it to be honored. But I can also understand British Airways' position. It's human error, unquote. Mr. Shah said all affected customers are being contacted and BA will provide a full refund as well as a 100-pound voucher. Travel-up customer Ash Goubet from London says he had booked a return flight to Tel Aviv for £195, but now has to pay £1,000. And we could go on with this, but this happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and some airlines honor the price when they make the mistake. I know for a fact United has, which is a nice thing to say about United. <laughs> and some airlines don't. Um, but uh, I think you the other know, thing the is, here, here is, I think that they've made a, a bit of an error here because BA have been through the ringer so much in the last few months about all sorts of things. And it would have been such an easy win for them, wouldn't it, to have honoured those Very prices so. and lost a few hundred quid on the way, a few thousand pounds maybe as well. But actually, I think uh, for, for the PR value, they should yeah. just let them have the tickets. The I completely agree. And they should have advertised it and really done some publicity yeah. about it, saying, we made a mistake, but we honour our mistake. And when we do something good for a passenger, we'll, we'll talk about that. When we make a mistake and it's in the passenger's best interest, We'll take care of that, too, because we are, after all, BA. That's Air Nev. Yeah, well, indeed. And, of course, I mean, let's uh, – so on, on the well, – the, the picture there is of a 747. Have I identified that correctly? Uh, you have. Okay. Yes, okay, uh, yes. Is, yes. So, I mean, how many people <laughs> – get me. Uh, how, many people, how many people will that plane actually hold? Oh, just under 400, probably. So yeah. we're, we're basically only looking at, like, the equivalent of four flights. Hmm. You know, so you think, well, surely the common sense would say, for the sake of just four flights going out really cheaply, do you know what I mean? You just sort of think, well, just just honour it and not upset everyone. I don't. I don't. Also, I think that the thing to remember here is that all of the money usually is made in business class and first class. Yeah. There's very little little money made in the economy fares uh, on these aircraft. So you know, it would have been easy win. And what's happened now, of course, is Virgin Atlantic have taken the initiative and they, <laughs> they're now they doing advertising, saying, "Oh, you know, uh, we honour our uh, prices." Uh, so that they've now stolen the march on, on BA because of it. Let me ask you a question. When prices are advertised in the UK for airfares, do they have the fare separate from the taxes so that you can actually see how much the taxes is, or is it lumped together into yes, one number? No, it is all split out. And uh, actually, trying to, when I'm doing my expenses for work and I, I'm adding it all up, um, that, that there's all sorts of you know air passenger duty fare. There's mm. um, uh, taxes, uh, especially. I mean, long haul in particular is very expensive. 
but you, it is all split out, yes, in, into uh, individual categories. In the U.S., it's one price. So if you saw the price of 195 pounds, which is one dollar for the fare, and, and yeah. plus all the 194 pounds in taxes, you think, okay, it's a 200 pound fare to the Tel Aviv. Maybe it's a low price. But if you see it as being a one pound fare, wouldn't you think, well, I'm capitalizing on a mistake that someone made? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think some common sense has to uh, prevail somewhere, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, well, uh, again, it's just you do worry about the uh, marketing department that's in charge at, at BA sometimes, don't you? I mean, it's uh, something's not right there, is it? Really, it's it no. could have been handled. It's, it's it's again, it's the same thing with the whole IT debacle, isn't it? This the whole thing could have been handled so much better. Yeah, I think people accept that there's going to be difficulties and problems from time to time. There's going to be outages and yeah. all sorts of things, but it depends how the, the PR and marketing folks put the spin on it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they have been left wanting on a number of occasions. Indeed. So uh, we've, uh, we're going to move on to the next story now. I don't know. Uh, I think Owen has just come back, but I don't know if he's ready to read uh, story number four. Um. I'll take in that. In about two minutes. Because oh, no. I'm waiting for my emails to load up. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm not sure why the camera won't stay on, though. That's the most oh, annoying. Gotta, oh, there. Got to love technology. Nev, do you want to take the uh, the next yes. story then? And we'll keep moving while, while he's... I will. And this is on the Fortune.com website. And it says that uh, JetBlue Airways founder... Uh, David Nealman is setting his sights high once again, raising $100 million for a new low-cost U.S. airline he hopes to launch by 2020. Mm -hmm. Dubbed Moxie Airways, the venture would use a fleet of lightweight carbon fiber Bombardier CS300 aircraft and smaller airports such as Fort Worth in Texas and Burbank, California, in an effort to reduce fuel consumption, wait times, and other air travel-related fees and hassles according to bloomberg led by the brazilian american airline industry entrepreneur an investment group has been soliciting chinese funders to pay for 18 of the required planes neilman will also put his own money into moxie which has secured orders for 60 c-series jets from Canada's Bombardier so far. Nealman has had a hand in sending a number of airlines into the skies, including Morris Air, which Southwest acquired in 1993 within Morris's first year of business. Nealman also founded Brazilian airline Azul and Canadian low-cost carrier WestJet and is, is an investor in TAP Air Portugal. He launched JetBlue in 2000 and famously donated his salary as the CEO each year to a crisis fund for airline employees. So, Mike, this, uh, this guy's got a bit of a track record here. Do you think he'll make a, make a go of this? Oh, he sure does. You know, he's uh, not only founded JetBlue, but uh, he founded Azul, which is uh, a Brazilian airline and uh, was also, uh, you know, involved in the founding of WestJet. And I suspect that this could really work with the uh, CS300s. He's got a really good track record. And uh, JetBlue happens to be uh, probably my one of my favorite U.S. airlines. They're very, very comfortable to fly. And uh, he did a great job. He's not with them any longer. But uh, I suspect... Uh, suspect it's going to happen and and they're they're a, a like a low cost cost model are they they're sort of they're low cost like southwest is low cost nobody's low cost anymore they're uh, they're just a smaller uh well 
there's low cost and there's low value. Right. Uh, JetBlue <laughs> is a full service airline, and uh, and they started up as a low cost carrier, but their prices are the same as anyone else. But they just happen to have really good service, like right. uh, Southwest and uh, like Alaska, and like uh, Virgin America did before it was bought up by by Alaska. They're, they're, I, I highly recommend them. Yeah, it's a company I'd love to fly out uh, with. JetBlue, I'd love to try them out. Yeah, they sound like it. Yeah, they sound good. Have, have you had the uh, the pleasure, Nev? No, I haven't actually. Uh, I'd like to, but yeah, the, I hear lots of good things about them as well. So, uh, yes, next time in, I'm in the US uh, flying around, I'd like to do that actually. Yeah, I, I must admit, I, I sort of realise, I'm sort of beginning to realise actually how lucky we are here in Europe because very few people have like the the low cost models that that we're so used to here in in the uk i mean it's you know when they when they i know it is when they say no frills they really do mean no frills but i mean when you think like uh my my trip to to rome that we did and i think that was 70 pound return i mean that's mm. so cheap i mean we we just take that for granted here in europe don't we that that you can literally jump on the equivalent of an airbus although it's a boeing in this case but you know you can jump on an airbus and go wherever you want for less than it would cost you to go to london on the train yeah, <laughs> no, you're very very fortunate because um here uh you know in the u.s i've thought about and probably next time i will uh fly rather than uh than drive to uh dulles airport but it's about a 600 mile uh distance wow. and um Flying is, I'd never be able to fly for less than $350, $400, where Goodness. if that was within Europe, you could probably do, I mean, how long is, how, what's the distance from London to, uh, to Rome? It's got to be not very much more, and you were able to do it for 70 pounds return. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, it was, it's insane, and we were working it out, weren't we, Matt, that, yeah. um, that was actually cheaper than to go from uh, Beckles, which is just outside of uh, Bungie, where you are, yeah. uh, to London. It was cheaper to go to Rome than it was on a return train a return on the same train. Day, That's right. yeah. going down to London. I think it was something, it was like, it was £80 each way, wasn't it, to actually yeah, go I by so, train yeah. from Beckles to London, or if you can get yourself to Stansted, you can go to Rome for, for you know, like half the, literally half price. It's crazy. Uh, it, it was crazy, it crazy, is. crazy, crazy. But um, the low-cost airlines in Europe have definitely made the world and and Europe a lot, lot smaller. Um, and even you know, this there's companies doing uh, uh, prices as low as two euros sometimes, where they are actually yeah. just two euro fares. And granted, there's not many seats on you know yeah, price like that, but yeah. you know, EasyJet have done it, uh, Ryanair have done it, uh, I. Pink Jet too have done it. At, at yes, some they stage. have. Yeah, they have. Yeah, yeah. It's... So uh, they've all uh, collectively they've made Europe a really, really small uh, place, which is just great when you want to travel and when you want to see the world a little bit. Well, and of course, with um, when you when you think like the size of America and how uh, you know the, the vast the the continent on it on its own is, it is genuinely astounding that somebody hasn't done the same as you know what we've got here in europe i, I mean micah I, I almost can't believe it you know well you know they they've tried and there is uh frontier airlines and spirit and and a few others but uh sometimes with some of those airlines the service is is so 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 low i mean and we joke about ryanair uh but uh you know but the the service is there because they go so so regularly yeah that, you know you don't want to go on on on, on the low-cost carrier because you really they fee you to death and uh whereas on the other hand in the u.s i was thinking 
the hotels are so much less expensive than yes. what you find for yeah, the value in, in Europe and the UK. I stayed at a, uh, uh, a division of Marriott called the Residence Inn. Had a full suite with a full kitchen. I mean, a full kitchen, a huge. Oh room. yeah, and those um, residents in it, right? <laughs> yeah, and it was less than a hundred dollars a night, which is incredible. Where if I were to be paying for that same size room, um, in in some place in Europe, it would probably be three or four times that. At least, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I noticed when I went to Las Vegas the other week, I had a, a sort of regular room, which was actually pr pretty good. But my colleague, AJ, he got a um, a suite and he showed me a picture of it. I said, AJ, that's not a suite. That's a conference room. That they've really? Been. It's absolutely incredible. <laughs> uh, so, uh, wow. yeah. Um, but uh, no, I think hotel, uh, hotel value uh, is hard to find uh, in Europe and certainly in the it UK. Is. It's all very expensive. Unless in our case, you, you have a, a Jenny who is sorting out your accommodation and you're able to get uh, a very nice room with air conditioning and all sorts for for not very much money at all uh, but, uh, yeah definitely shout out to jenny for uh helping us out <laughs> yeah, with... yeah. cool yeah that was absolutely astounding anyway we should we should probably move on to the next story if that's all right owen are you ready to uh, read a story so this is yes uh, this is on the express.co.uk it is indeed, and this says British Airway pu uh, Airways publicly slam Heathrow for unacceptable two-hour border queues. And do you know what? Two-hour border queues, I kind of have to agree, couldn't be waiting around that long. <laughs> British Airways have publicly spoken up about passport control queues at London Heathrow Airport. They've accused the London Airport of making people wait for over two hours in lengthy queues amid a sea of people. Visitors flying to the UK and Brits flying home all deserve better, British Airways spokesperson told express.co.uk. It's totally unacceptable that returning families and visitors regularly face huge queues and a sea of people due to inadequately staffed desks and gates in the immigration hall. We understand the importance of policing our borders, but what is the cost to our economy uh, of putting off business travellers who frequently have to endure queues of two hours or more? The UK needs to show it's open to the world, but sadly the figures show that the queues are getting worse, not better. So we're urging government to take action uh, to prevent summary of misery for thousands of travellers. British Airways have revealed that official targets for clearing immigration haven't been met on more than 3,500 occasions this year, said the Evening Standard. The uh, most, recent, uh, most recently, figures shows 70,000 passengers at Heathrow have been made to wait too long. The Home Office uh, targets are for Britons and travellers from the European Economic Area to get through immigration within 25 minutes and the rest of the world getting through within 45 minutes. BA have lacked, uh, blamed a lack of UK Border Force staff for the long waits as well as the regular closure of a number of e-gates which were initially intended to speed up the immigration process. Um, yeah, it just basically goes on to say that you know, the the amount of people coming in uh, are just they they can't go through the border quick enough. Um, but I think this is a, a worldwide problem. Um, uh, I know in uh, JFK it can be pretty bad in the US. Uh, here at London Stansted, it is absolutely awful sometimes. <laughs> um, uh, Heathrow is the same. When I went into Gatwick, um, that was a nightmare. Um, so it was, yeah, they, they 
it definitely does need to something needs to be done uh but i think it's just a manpower issue now, now, Nev, I'm going to ask a question here because I seem to recall uh, somebody having a a certain change uh, to their ability to travel, uh, and presumably that was all okay for when you went to Vegas because you've got this new global traveller thing. Did that yeah, make much of a difference? I, yes, that did work very well for me. I, I paid my £62 to the British government and then the $100 to the US federal thingy i would imagine um and that gives me global entry uh, in and out of the us and that means that uh, all you've got to do is put your passport in one of the e-readers uh, and put your fingerprints on another um, um uh, what's it called um area where, where it yeah. is um that's it scanner that's the word i'm looking for um <laughs> and uh, that was brilliant that that was literally two and a half three minutes the, the whole thing and it worked perfectly so um uh, they were doing interviews at the american embassy in london for all of that mm. i'm not sure they're doing it at the moment but um it certainly if even if you just use it once it makes a huge difference really? um and actually for a change on the way back from heathrow uh, all the way into heathrow from portugal um this time uh, this this week um the uh, queues weren't too bad, but also all the e-reader gates were opening, uh, were working properly as well, and wow. that made a huge difference. It's when you see a massive queue and there's like ten of the gates uh, inoperative, and and that's a yeah. hopeless case for me. Yeah. You know, I had a question about that too, Nev, because um, you know you got the global entry to get you in and out of the U.S. I have uh, some friends that uh, uh, one of them is a British subject and has a British passport, and his wife uh, is from the U.S. here, and he just they just flew to the U.K. and they got in at their usual time with all the planes coming in from you know starting at in, in, in six in the morning or so and going to about eleven. And he, with his British passport, he passed right through in Heathrow, but she was in line for about an hour and a half trying to get through. Is there a similar kind of global entry for uh, U.S. citizens into the U.K. as is offered? Uh, Not as I understand it, no. Um, but I'm I'm sure that they will be there will be a reciprocal arrangement sooner rather than later. And although actually, having said that, I I do know of people that do have that kind of uh, maybe not called global entry. It's called something else. But uh, certainly there there are options there um, where you can effectively you know uh, jump the queue by. Um, just go, just having your passport and your fingerprints checked. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, having said that, I've been at Heathrow many times when it's been, you know, the the, the queue has almost been as long as the flight uh, on the short haul <laughs> Really, wow! Uh, that just makes it, you know, ridiculous. So they've they've got to do whatever the the people do with global entry and that kind of thing. They, they've got to do better, I think, at uh, organising this. Uh, I, I, the first time I'd ever experienced this, um, I mean, what was it that we did when we went through? Stansted because we did a massive queue jump at security. Is that fast track? Oh yeah, fast track security. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, um, I'd never done that before. That was quite quite the most amazing thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, especially at that time of the morning because there's just chaos around you and it was just like and, and I'm busy following Owen because he knows Stansted quite well. So we're being sort of frog marched down this other, the other part of the. Uh, the, the airport and it was just like but saying goodbye to all the security as we go well hey there we go and straight through and, and on i mean do you do that when you're traveling Neff? sometimes um you only get that normally if you have paid for a fast track entry yes um through the airport or if you're on a business class ticket um those are the, the two ways you can get mm. through the fast track having said that the fast track going out to um Foro the other day from heathrow was not fast at all they were 
doing lots of mucking about. Oh, really? No oh. faster than the regular line. To be right. Honest with you. Oh, well, yeah, right, yeah, you kind of have to pick and choose which airports that you do use it at because uh, definitely some airports really don't uh, really don't make a difference uh, whether you buy fast track or not. But definitely Stansted at the busy rush hour times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's. I think it's a necessary, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. a necessary uh, addition. E- evil, yes. <laughs> you know yeah. the other thing you just mentioned—the the word that I was thinking of, Owen—is uh, you said rush hour times, and I'm curious about that. And Heathrow, and in every place, is that there's times when there are rush hours, and all the aircraft from all over the world are coming in constantly between six and nine a.m. or mm. or or you know six six a.m. and eleven a.m. and other parts. Uh, of the day, other times of the day, it's really slowed down. So couldn't a lot of this be handled through traffic control and and not based on the number of aircraft coming in? Is, is there even a way to do that? At a, is Heathrow that busy 24 hours a day that it can't be done? No, I think that they, they have natural sort of very high volumes of traffic, particularly first thing in the morning from the incoming flights to the US. So you've got 747s, A350s, A380s, you know, the whole lot coming in uh, between what sort of seven o'clock in the morning um, and 12. Um, but before that, you've got the Asian carriers coming in from Singapore. So again, yeah, very thing. high volumes yeah. uh, coming in there. And then you've got the regular uh, European flights as well. So um, th- there are natural rush hours to the whole thing. Um, but it's um yeah you don't want to be in a rush that would be my no, no indeed. <laughs> indeed and it, it was uh I, I must admit this this time coming through it's the very first time that my e-passport worked as well i was actually able to use the e-gates because they were working at stanford when we when we came back and i was actually That's able very to, weird it was very weird it actually worked in fact you were the one that got stopped for a change not not me which is most unusual yeah well my one uh my passport doesn't really work with the uh e-gates and i've been told by border force not to use it um with the e-gates despite the fact that it's got the little uh chip in electronic chip in it uh but what i do when i'm traveling within europe is i use my irish passport card uh which has all the bells and whistles with it the uh the electronic chip and everything in it but um it's just an id card and generally speaking the lines for the id cards are a little bit shorter uh especially in stansted um so whenever i'm traveling it's easiest just to use that just to use the car and go through yeah you know looking in the chat room uh liz said that when she came through uh london uh, heathrow last year it only took her 20 minutes to get through with no problems at all but as i was going to point out and lane street already did obviously they knew who she was well of course indeed (laughs) absolutely uh, what was it? Uh, Neil Neil Lamwon is saying that uh, I remember Heathrow being fine when we went to Atlanta just a few years ago. U.S. immigration wasn't re- wasn't bad really. A little bit slow, but it was okay. I, I, again, I guess it depends on what time you hit it. Again, doesn't it? This is the same the same issue. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. But, Indeed, uh, we really um, should move on. I suppose. <laughs> yes, moving on. Um, so. Is it me that's taking the next story? Yeah, go on then. Why not? Yes, yeah. I'm just slightly out of sequence there. Yeah. Um, this is on the flightglobal.com website, and it says that uh, Airbus does not foresee a need for a further hike to its maximum takeoff weight of the A330neo following its decision to lift the threshold to 251 tons. Its A330neo is currently based on a 242 ton maximum takeoff weight airframe introduced in 2015 and the 
A330-900 has a range of 6,550 nautical miles. Airbus had gradually lifted the maximum takeoff weight of the A330 since the Dash 300 entered service in 1994 at 212 tonnes. The airframer expects to put the higher weight version of the A330neo into service in mid-2020, lifting the A330-900's range to 7,200 nautical miles. Uh, A330neo programme manager Odile Jubecourt, speaking to Flight Global in Toulouse ahead of a route-proving flight to Lisbon, said she did not expect the type to require a further maximum takeoff weight increase. I don't think there's a need to do it, she said, adding that in terms of the range, the aircraft already already has a huge capability but she also points out that the ultimate decision will depend on market demands and states it will always be in our DNA to look for incremental improvements. Jubecourt had previously described the 251-tonne figure as a best compromise for the A330neo, which is powered by Rolls-Royce Trent 7000 engines. She also stresses that the A330neo testing has not revealed any evidence of problems with the power plant, despite it being uh, its design being derived from the Boeing 787's Trent 1000, currently the subject of extensive scrutiny over blade durability. Jubecourt insists that the Trent 7000 is a different power plant. We're very confident about the engine, she says, but adds that the company is still cooperating closely with Rolls-Royce given the Trent 1000 situation. And route proving is part of the final stages of certification for the A330-900, which is set to enter service with TAP Portugal this summer. Airbus also intends to start flight testing the smaller A330-800 this year, says Jubecourt, which will also be offered as a 251-tonne aircraft with a range of 8,150 nautical miles. So they're squeezing more and more out of existing airframes or, or improving the airframes, obviously, to get to better range. And I guess it depends on, on the routes that they're going to send them to as well as to the performance that they need uh, from the aircraft and, and the capacity. Yeah. You know, I've always been curious about why they were working on the A330neo as opposed to just developing the A350, which is, uh, I, I would, uh, they're about the same size, more or less, aren't they? Mm, Both yeah. twin engines? Very similar, yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it because of, uh, they've, you know, they've got lots of the A330 uh, airframes kicking around? I mean, that's... I think it's also maybe um, existing A330 customers, so TAP Portugal is, is yeah. a big A330 customer uh, and others as well. So maybe they, because of, uh, I mean, obviously there, there's lots of cross-crew qualifications as well. Yeah. So if there was an A350 offered, there would have to be significant be training. Retight rated, but, yeah. But for those well, actually, when we uh, interviewed uh, about interviewed Airbus at Farnborough a couple of years ago about the A350, uh, they were saying that they wanted it and expected to be in the same uh, same class as the A330. And just like uh, Nick can go from the A330 to the A340, they expected people to be able to go right to the A350. Oh, okay. oh really? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, yeah. well, in in that case, it does it does sort of question maybe why, maybe why they they haven't sort of started developing that over over and, and you know just sticking with the A330 Neo. Who knows? Well, I think it could be uh, due to markets as well. In that, um, some it, it might not be a good time to be buying uh, um, an amazing amount of aircraft. And while um, you're not going to say the, that word Brexit, are you? <laughs> I'm not going to mention that at all. But um, if if people aren't buying the new products, uh, they need to still 
keep a bit of uh, revenue and they need to keep people interested in their products and maybe it's just to maximize the uh, life of these A330s and then uh, eventually it'll go to a point where they have to get um, where they have to get the A350, you know? But the A330, Neo, I don't think it's a conversion of the A330. It's oh, is they, it? A, oh, right, okay. It's, it's a new aircraft. It's like oh. the, uh, the 737 MAX as opposed to the 737. Oh, right, okay. So, I don't know. No. Yeah, well, I think we need to do some more, more research on, on this, I think. <laughs> yes. So who's taking the next story uh, now? I reckon Micah should have a go at this one. Well, yes. American Airlines. Yeah. yeah. It's from the Motley Fool, and naturally, if it's foolish, it should be me. Well, indeed. <laughs> uh, American Airlines suffers a latest airline IT meltdown. And uh, American Airlines, now this is what I always love about these stories. America, the headline, American Airlines suffers the latest IT meltdown. And then the secondary headline, American Airlines subsidiary, PSA Airlines. Oh, right. says, Wait a minute. Was it American Airlines or was it the subsidiary? <laughs> no, granted, it's PSA, which is uh, actually a wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines, stands for Pacific Southwest Airlines, canceled more than 1,000 regional flights since last Thursday. And this was uh, dated June 19th, which was Tuesday of this week, uh, after a hardware issue took its crew scheduling system offline. Within the span of a month, during the summer of 2016, two top four U.S. airlines suffered crippling IT failures. Delta and Southwest were each forced to cancel thousands of flights during peak season, leading to lost revenue and uh, reputational damage. The summer of 2018 peak season is just getting started, but there's already been a major airline IT failure. The past week, cancellations have rapidly mounted at American Airlines regional subsidiary, PSA, due to problems with the carrier's crew scheduling system, with the airlines increasingly highlighting reliability as a key selling point for business travelers. It's an unfor unfortunate incident for American Airlines. Unfortunate? <laughs> That's a great word. <laughs> they're, not tr they're trying not to upset the shareholders, I think that's what <laughs> the PSA Airlines is a regional airline that operates 50 to 76 seat jets for American, mainly from the carrier's massive hub in Charlotte. While many of the regional airlines that fly smaller planes for the legacy carrier independently owned, PSA is a subsidiary of American. Last Thursday, um, that's not yesterday, but the day before, week before yesterday, right through recording this. Last Thursday, PSA Airlines experienced a hardware issue at its headquarters in Dayton, Ohio, that impacted its crew scheduling and tracking system. This made it impossible for PSA to properly match its pilots and flight attendants with its aircraft. Not surprisingly, this led to a huge number of flight cancellations. PSA Airlines canceled 275 flights on Thursday, 400 flights on Friday, and most of those flights were headed into or out of the Charlotte hub. PSA tried to return to a normal schedule over the weekend, but it didn't take long for the IT issue to reappear. The carrier canceled about 50 flights on Saturday and hundreds on Sunday. By mm. Monday, the cumulative number of flight cancellations had surpassed 1,100. 
PSA also canceled flights on Tuesday morning. While American Airlines says that PSA Airlines is now stabilized, its computer systems will take several days to resume a full schedule due to crews and aircraft being out of position. Well, and of course, that's always the problem with anything like this, of course. It's not so much, uh, it's not so much the initial incident that took everything down, but of course, everything's in the wrong place, isn't it? Because you've a- aircraft that were supposed to be at the other end of the country are now not. They're still in Charlotte, for example. I mean, it, that that's often more the more the problem, isn't it? After an issue like this, is is actually getting everybody back to where they should be. And one of the things that I heard uh, within uh, uh, on Twitter and some other places is that uh, uh, PSA was sending out emails to its crew saying, "Email us back and let us know where you are." They had no <laughs> idea where they were positioned all over the wow. country. Which is- Goodness me. Pretty amazing. Well, I, I, you know, maybe it's time that we all had trackers. Perhaps that's the answer. We should all be, you know, have a, a chip in our hand and then everybody will know where we are at all times. <laughs> oh, and can you imagine what would have happened, you know, being crew if that happened at, at Harpjet? How, how, would, how would that have been handled? I can't imagine <laughs> that going on. Um, well, funny you should say that. Um, <laughs> I've actually experienced something like it, not that the the uh, system down itself, we could actually track uh, where everyone was and what everyone was doing, but we couldn't make any changes. Uh, so anytime that there was um, a issue uh, and the, the aircraft was slightly delayed, it was very difficult to update the, the uh, issue. And the way we, we got around with it is that we have manual backup uh, for absolutely everything. So um, it's all done on paper then and uh you just pack it on paper like you would on a computer it's a a long slow process but uh you you try and make sure that everything runs everything else runs as swiftly as possible uh and to minimize the the sort of effect of uh what slowing down um by doing the paperwork manually uh does so i it actually had very little effect um for for Harpjet when amazed. that happened, <laughs> but it is very it is very interesting because uh, it it it's kind of uh, it's kind of archaic almost to be uh, using just paper strips to keep a a, a town crew. <laughs> I mean, you know, novel. <laughs> but you know, that's one of the things that, that frightens me overall about. Uh, technology in general is that we've lost the ability to do things on paper and because we're so reliant on IT that when something goes bad it's gone and we're really in trouble and and I think that's something we need to consider because that's how uh, that's how the new wars are going to be fought going to be over IT True. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And actually, just uh, uh, not quite the same example, but Sue is obviously, uh, for some reason, she wants to take my, my name as her married Did name. Did she? Uh, she oh. has just created a massive spreadsheet of all the things she's got to change uh, with regards just to change her surname. And the list is well into sort of 40, 45 items. Really? And of course, you can only do it online, or the most part you can. And then you've got to back it up with secondary evidence and sending off marriage certificates. And all the rest of it, and it's uh, we've just been doing it for a couple of days now. We've we've not even broken the back of it. There's just so much to do, um, and uh, it's very very time consuming as well. So, so and of, that's assuming, of course. I mean, if if you imagine if you didn't have a computer, you know, if you were not in the oh, yeah. IT world, 
um, you wouldn't have any choice in the matter, really. You'd have to go down to your local library and borrow a computer <laughs> or something like that. Mm, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, I mean, it is, it is my, I mean, I love my technology, as everybody knows, but uh, there are there are times where you just think, oh, can't I just send in a form and be done with it? Do I have yeah. to really sort of jump through all this? I mean, presumably, um, uh, Mrs. Nev is, is obviously quite prolific, you know, prolific when it comes to using her tablet. Oh, definitely. And she's got, you know, an iMac as well. So, you know, she she likes using all that, but it it is very hard work uh, to do all all these things. But like when you change your address, you know, there's so many things. There's always one or two that you've forgotten as well. I mean, I've I've been moved house now like over a year and I'm still finding things that are going to the wrong, you know, discovering that I've got the wrong address. Uh, I had I, I ordered a delivery of trousers, believe it or not, with a company called Giacomo, and it was just and yeah. wrong. I just ordered it. I didn't think anything of it, but because it was an address that hadn't been changed. Yes, exactly. Yeah, precisely. Um, but uh, there you are. That's, um, that's indeed. It is, it? I reckon you should take the next story, Nev. Oh, do you think so? Yes, yeah. I've, I've, oh, this, this story has annoyed me so much this week. I've, I've got all cross about it. Have so you? I'll, okay, I'll, brace yourselves, everyone. I'll try and read it in a, in a, in a sensible and professional right. manner. Good luck, everyone. It, yeah. it is on the dailymail.co.uk. That's all you need to know yep. about this story. <laughs> do you remember the BA777 uh, that had an engine fire at Las Vegas? No, in never heard of it. In uh, September 2015? Gosh, was it that long? Ago? Really? Well, um, the captain, who was hailed a hero at the time, was to blame for a chaotic evacuation, oh. federal investigations uh, investigators said. One flight attendant was seriously injured after fire ripped through the engine of the aircraft at McCarran International in September 2015. All 157 passengers and 13 crew on board the Boeing 777-236ER jet which was bound for London, Gatwick, were able to evacuate, but the plane was substantially damaged by fire. And uh, yesterday, the US uh, NTSB released its report into the incident, which it blamed a fatigue crack in the left engine compressor for the fire. The NTSB said that the captain, Chris Henke from Reading, Berkshire, aborted the takeoff just two seconds after the left engine failed and brought the plane to a halt within 13 seconds. Uh, but it also blamed Henke for the chaotic, evac- chaotic evacuation that followed. After a fire alarm sounded, the captain called for an engine fire checklist, but it took him 22 seconds to follow the checklist's order to close a valve that shuts off fuel to the engine. During that time, Boeing estimated that 97 gallons of fuel spilled onto the runway, helping to feed the fire. The report also found that the captain called for an evacuation before completing an evacuation checklist. The checklist would have required him to shut both engines down. But instead, the right engine remained on, which hampered the evacuation because it was blowing on the exit slides. The report estimated that the right engine remained on for 43 seconds after the captain called for an evacuation. A relief pilot noticed and told the captain to shut it down. The plane was only 55% full and the evacuation took two minutes and 32 seconds. The fire was extinguished by the emergency vehicles within five minutes of the left engine failure, the report said. And it goes on and on and on. Um, <laughs> I mean, let's just... Well, there's two shocking things to this story. A, what on earth is a triple seven doing only being 55% full? Right. So something hasn't sold the tickets very well on that sector. No. Uh, but uh, B, yes, there was a serious injury, but um, I think... The skipper did a very good job, as did all the crew, the, you know, the cabin crew in particular, and the relief uh, pilot and the first officer. 
and clearly yes it wasn't textbook uh, there, there were some things which weren't quite right but at the end of the day everybody got out and I think the response of the fire service at McCarran was exemplary as well they they came it's, you know, it's a big airport there so they they came out very quickly indeed and there was lots of mention in the press about the um, plane not being evacuated within the 90 seconds that uh, people expect it to be or, or is required to be but at the end of the day you know that's uh, uh that that's the target um and there are all sorts of extenuating circumstances and you know there was a pretty big fire going on here so i think he stopped it very quickly got everybody out and uh, but do you notice there's lots of people carrying, carrying bags. their bags i was about to say that this is i was going to scream that <laughs> i'm so upset look at those morons those morons with baggage the plane is on fire so what do they do they grab their bags and 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 the 90 seconds to not evacuated in they, is it 90 seconds with all the exits? If an uh, engine's it, it, running... With, with usually with half the exits unavailable. Mm, yeah, it's 90, 90 seconds with half yeah. the exits. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, I mean, as you say, though, the, the, the one thing that, that, that's really frustrating about this story is the fact that, does it really matter? Well, I, I, I suppose you could argue perhaps not shutting the engines down, therefore, you know, more, more fuel going on the runway. I suppose you could argue that was a bit, you know, inconvenient. Um, but as you say, everybody got off. Uh, you know, there was a good reason as to the actual, in you know, the, the, the serious injury. You know, it could have been a lot worse. Why? Why? I, I suppose they have to have these investigations, though, don't they? They have to get to the bottom of, of what actually happened, you know, maybe so that did, people can I learn did, from Yeah, them. I did actually read the NTSB report yesterday uh, yeah. when I, I, I read about it. And, of course, yes, all these things are mentioned, but, of course... Um, the media just have to make such a meal yeah. of it, uh, and they f uh, fail to recognise all the other, you know, mitigating factors. And uh, I don't see anything in this article that mentions lots of passengers carrying their bags off the plane. <laughs> so, you know, and the other question I had, they talked about the fact that it took 22 seconds for the pilot to get down the engine shutoff checklist. Is that because it took 22 seconds for him to find the checklist? Or is it Possibly, because yeah. the checklist is 20, you know, it takes 22 seconds because you're going through everything on the checklist and the checklist needs to be shorter if you want it to take less time. Mm. Yeah. I think also, obviously, that there are, you know, having spoken to, to Nick and, and, and Al and other people there, Obviously, very much standard operating procedures for this sort of thing, which is what everybody trains for in the mm. simulator. But at the end of the day, there's um, a degree of some discretion on the part of the captain, exactly. I would have thought, in these circumstances. Well, of the, moment you, the moment you take that away, then I, I think you're, you're losing something. Definitely. And of course, when you're doing these things in the simulator, with the best simulator in the world, you cannot simulate the panic that goes through. Well, I know the, the, all of these pilots, obviously, are... are trained professionals i know that but when you're physically in that situation you ca you have very little control over that rush of adrenaline that will no doubt have hit uh, the the pilot and the first officer you know so you know you you've just sort of you, you're going to struggle to think 100% clearly in that initial moment or it might take you 5 6 seconds to just you know even just sort of slap snap yourself out of it and then do it do you know what i mean but in that initial it takes you a minute to realize that this is actually happening do you know what i mean it's yeah. you know you could easily account for 5 seconds of 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 this so-called delay just purely because He's trying to work out, is this actually as serious as I think it is? Yes, it is. Right, let's do the checklist. 
Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, and you have to go through the decision making process anyway. So I, that that you know decision making process. Well, what what's the course of action? You know, what, what's the yeah. problem? What's the course of action? Uh, definitely, that takes time too. Uh, so I don't think twenty two seconds is a uh, is very long to be perfectly honest with you. Um, yeah, and in terms of the evacuation. There is absolutely no way that you can evacuate an aircraft in 90 seconds if passengers take their bags. Uh, no. that's, that's just uh, <laughs> a, a, a reality. Um, there is. They said it was only 55% full and it took uh, 2 minutes and 32 seconds. Um, and yeah, okay, that's a minute over, but the size of some of these bags that you can I see, know. like they're full rollerboards, um, rollerboards, I mean, we, you know? we have this we have this conversation every every time uh, there's been an evacuation every, uh, and, and the morons are taking their bags. There's there's I mean, how do we stop this? Because this is a this is now a problem, isn't it? I mean, well, it's a simple way to stop it. There really is. When someone comes off with their bags, they are arrested by the federal government for right. not following flight uh, 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 flight yeah. crew orders. Because that's the, the 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 display and the evacuation display says don't take your bags. It says go. Yeah. All you got to do is start arresting them and finding them, and it'll stop. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think I think I'd, I'd kind of like that to happen. Is is that practical though? I, I don't mean to be boring. I know, I know what everybody's supposed to do, but I mean, is is the is the other solution basically that everybody has to put all their baggage in the hold apart from if you need you know medical you know medicine basically i mean is that the uh, other option i i think the the fact that you have uh so few evacuations per year and uh i think that it would kick up quite a bit of fuss uh yeah. with passengers it, it already kicks up fuss when you try and take them uh take it and you know gate tag them and then put them into the hold uh when you don't have enough space in the happens anymore uh on any airline um yeah. that, that kicks up a fuss so yeah, it's and the other thing. The other thing that needs to happen is the NTSB, and uh, probably it'll happen here in the U.S. Congress at some point or another. Needs to look into uh, evacuation standards, uh, and the 90 seconds that we talk about when that's tested, that's all done with trained crew and people mm -hmm. that know what's going on that have evacuated before yeah. and usually in good physical shape. And uh, they need to look into that and change things around. And it may make flying more expensive in the long run because aircraft may need to be redesigned for different kinds of evacuation. But that 90 seconds, I don't believe it can happen if you really have a 777 filled with people, only ha of, of real passengers, with only half the exits open. And especially when we're crowding people in with shorter seat pitch yeah. or, or smaller seat pitch, people just can't move. And I think this is something that really needs to be examined very, very seriously because it's truly going to become a danger at some point and unfortunately it won't be examined until there really are a number of deaths from it yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's what i was going to say actually <clears throat> is that this is the trouble with something like this they will look at it but only when something horrific has occurred uh, and then they'll make all the alterations that they need need to but uh, yeah i mean I, i'm pretty sure that virtually every single person who is listening to this show right now will not do something so stupid as to try and take their cab cabin bag with them i i i just i just despair i really do we're preaching to the choir yeah i was gonna say we're, you know our our audience is very very bright and knows aviation so we're preaching to the choir mm. i wish that we could get this out to uh, other places Here's the thing. I mean, what do you need to take with you? 
um, when it's your life in the balance, yeah. what do you need to take with nothing. you? Nothing. Uh, you don't, you don't exactly. Nothing. Exactly. There's absolutely nothing that you need to take with you. And if, mm. if there are things that you feel that you you 100% need, such as a passport, that sort of thing, that's why you wear uh, trousers with pockets and you put those those things that you can't evacuate without and into your pockets. Um, and that's about it. There's, you, should, you need absolutely nothing else. Yeah, I, no, I completely agree. I mean, anything else can be replaced. You know, yeah. I mean, it's... That's what it is, you, you know. Your life is pri- is priceless, literally priceless. Yeah. You know. But anyway, we could go on and on about this, and we probably will for weeks and months and <laughs> years on end. <laughs> so maybe we should move on. <laughs> um, I'll take the next one, shall I? I haven't read one yes, for a little while. Let's do. Okay. Good news, everyone. It's a short one, so you haven't got to put with my terrible reading for long. It's on the Economic Times, and the headline is Cathay Pacific adds advanced Airbus A350 1000 into its fleet. So Cathay Pacific is all set to fly home the newest member of its family, the advanced Airbus A350 1000 from Airbus headquarters at Toulouse, France, uh, to its home in Hong Kong. The Asian airline, which took delivery of the aircraft at the Airbus Delivery Centre earlier this morning, will fly it back to Hong Kong on a blend of biofuel. Uh, It is the second airline to acquire the A350-1000 after Airbus delivered the first to Qatar, Qatar, Qatar Airways. Uh, Cathay Cathay is due to take delivery of eight of these aircraft this year, with the remainder due to arrive by 2021. After initial rounds of regional services starting with Hong Kong, is it Taipei? Taipei. Taipei, sorry, I'm very, very bad at these names. Uh, on the 1st of July 2018, the A350-1000 will launch Cathay's new service from Hong Kong to Washington, D.C. on September the 15th. At 8,153 miles, it will also be the longest service on its network. The aircraft will also help Cathay serve Madrid, Tel Aviv, Amsterdam, SA, Manchester and Zurich later. The A350-1000 is more fuel efficient and can carry 334 passengers. That is 54 more than the A350-900. Great news everyone, they're packing a few more in. More, yeah. pe- more people to take their ha- their hand luggage with them in the event of an evacuation. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a, um, this is a really really cool thing that they're going on a, a blend of biofuel. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a good a good step in the right direction. It's yeah, it's it, it's interesting. What what is made of what is the the blend with? Uh, well, we need we need a fuel expert, don't we? Because it's. Uh, because it's aviation fuel is sort of basically sort of kerosene, isn't it? Or, or kerosene based? Yes, and uh, the biofuel they just like they make biodiesel. Yeah. Uh, kerosene and diesel are very very similar, very similar yeah. and uh, they make it with uh, well, you know, uh, fish and chips oil that's left over. Oui. They make it out of that. <laughs> Always happy to oblige. Uh, eating the uh, you know. Fish and chips required, of course. <laughs> absolutely. It's for, you're eating for aviation. Absolutely, absolutely. Mind you, we, we, we had our fair share of ice creams in uh, in uh, in Rome, did we not, Owen? Oh, I think, we, I think, I think that should be our new tagline, uh, eating for aviation. <laughs> eating for aviation, yeah. It's, uh, I think it's certainly going to be the uh, headline for this week's story, I think, <laughs> for this week's show. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Sam Chewy, I think you had uh, him on the show we did, yes, uh, yeah. a few months ago. But he did... Um, I think he was on this flight. Oh, uh, was he? Or 
at, at, at the the flight that came back from Toulouse, I think, ah. uh, if I'm not mistaken. That, um, that does he, sound like something he'd do. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because he, on his website, he's got uh, a few fantastic pictures of uh, the new Cathay Pacific uh, A350-1000 and uh, some of the journalists and the uh, uh, management and, and the uh, the passengers that went uh, with them. Um, but yeah, if you if you want to take a look at uh, some of the pictures from that, head to Sam Chewy, that's uh, S-A-M-C-H-U-I dot com, and uh, he's got a fantastic uh, blog about uh, about exactly that flight. Indeed, there we go. In yeah. fact, there it is. So I found the email now. There we are. It's just what I was talking about. So it's uh, yes, he was indeed on that flight. Okay, uh, let's move on. Yeah. Um, uh, this is um, who wants to take this story? This is another DailyMail.co.uk oh, story. I I, not... I think Micah should do the honours. What do you reckon? Yes, I think so. <laughs> he doesn't Here have to go. actually read this newspaper. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's the National Enquirer of the UK. I, just... <laughs> I, I fear you may Faster. be right. <laughs> <laughs> Friday, June twenty second. It's today. Faster in-flight Wi-Fi is on the way. Researchers develop develop more efficient way to send signals between airplanes and stations on the ground. And they're using radio frequency range of 71 to 76 gigahertz from air-to-ground connection. Uh, Commercially, could potentially allow broadband internet and video on demand. Um, And this is researchers at... uh, have developed a more efficient way to transfer data from aircraft to the ground station, potentially allowing for faster Wi-Fi on commercial airlines. A team from Carl Schuh Institute of Technology in Germany, please pardon my bad German, has managed <laughs> to transfer signals at a rate of 8 gigabytes per second from the air for the first time ever. The rapid transfer wow. could allow for broadband internet and video on demand to be made available on passenger airplanes. Now, before I go any further, Nev, that doesn't seem particularly fast, and don't we already have speeds close to that at this point? Yes, I, I don't know what the full story is here, but to also to do video on demand, imagine you know, for, for a full um, uh, plane load of passengers as well, I, I just don't understand how, how, how no. all the, the bandwidth is, is, is going to work. Because you're essentially going to share that, um, that you're going to share that eight gigs down essentially with what, sort of 270, 280 passengers? Yeah. <laughs> how is that? I mean, you'd be lucky if, if, they're, all, if they're all connected online. You're going to be lucky if you could send WhatsApps backwards and forwards to each other. It also says in that story that it says to put it in perspective. Sorry to talk over you, Mike. That the the rate of data would allow for 600 different 4K video streams to be watched simultaneously. Well, that's not going to happen, is it? Let's let's be sensible. Do you about think it. this story is possibly? <laughs> Oh, do you, I mean, do you think? No, this... I, I don't think we need to go any further with this story. <laughs> I mean, do you think they've possibly got some details incorrect in this story, and the fact perhaps that the the three throughput that they're talking about is much higher than the? I mean, because mind you, it did say eight gig. Is it eight gig or eight? Is it eight gigabit? Let me go. Or is it eight yeah, megabit? Eight, eight, eight gigabits per second. So eight gigabits is a reasonable amount. Okay. Yeah, that 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 sounds more like it. Yeah, but, but I but I don't think it's particularly being able to stream live. I don't think it's particularly 
new. Um, I know that uh, at one point, uh, Brian and I were pursuing a uh, possibility with a, uh, a Middle East carrier of doing a, a live stream, uh, live broadcast from one of their aircraft. I know it didn't ha work out, but uh, in terms of coming having that happen, but uh, mm. but they felt that their data stream was fast enough for us to be able to do that already. So. Um, I don't quite get this. I, I don't see what the point is at this point. Mm. Well, that's the next OB. That's <laughs> the next episode broke. Oh yeah, I dream on. Yeah, I don't think we'd ever get permission, would we? Because if something <laughs> if something went wrong, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, Nev, I think you should take the next story. Oh yes, it's a it's another. There's lots of BA stuff. Because uh, uh, Carlos this, is not here, he's just torturing us all. That's what he's that's doing. What it is. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a good news story for a change. What? And it's on the uh, the businesstraveler dot com, and it says that British Airways has named its twenty eighth and latest streamliner aircraft after its late employee Paul Jarvis. Uh, Jarvis, who passed away in May at the age of seventy two was the carrier's museum curator and has worked for BA for over 50 years. Wow. The, recent, the recently delivered 787-8 uh, aircraft, registration Golf Zulu, Zulu Braviet, Bravo Juliet Juliet, is the only plane in BA's fleet to bear a name and the first ever in the airline's history to be named after a member of staff. A spokesman for BA said that Paul had made a huge contribution to British Airways. His wife Nadine and daughters Lisa and Claire were invited to Boeing's Seattle factory to unveil the name on the side of the aircraft. Uh, well, that's, that's a really nice uh, touch, isn't it, from them? Um, it certainly to, is. to do that with such a such a loyal employee. And, and what a shame that uh, he is no longer with us. But, um, yeah, what a, what a fantastic uh, career this gentleman's had. He has yeah. great uh, way to honor someone. Yeah, certainly yeah. is. I it's should I should just say very quickly that uh, I think I think Richard Adams is busy being uh, having worked on helicopters before. He's been uh, he's busy been painting. He whilst watching the show, look, he's been working on his next creation. Uh, <laughs> oh, cool! Now, what is one of those? I think he did put the details in the email for me. Actually, I'll see if I can find them. So it's uh, it's uh, quite a cool cool bit of kit. As I say, I always love it when people. This is the joy of live, isn't it? While we're busy watch, while we're busy doing the show. So the helicopter was high chaps. The helicopter was uh, finished last week, and now making some fuel system modifications to this bad boy. So uh, there, we, there we go. Wow, it's nice to know that he's being you know entertained in his workshop while he's uh, <laughs> while he's while setting up so we've got one more story to go in the commercial segment and we haven't heard much from owen so i reckon we should give that one to him okay so this one is from uh, flightglobal.com and it says delta orders 20 replacement crj 900s Ooh. delta airline has ordered 20 of the uh, bombardier crj 900s no you're not saying it right i'm sorry you're not saying it right <laughs> <laughs> to replace older regional jets in its feeder fleet the aircraft will have 70 seats and will come equipped with the Canadian Airframer's atmosphere cabin, says the U.S. carrier. Deliveries will begin later this year and run through uh, 2020. Bombardier says the deal is worth $961 million at list prices. Uh, but we all know that uh, no carrier pays list prices for any aircraft. But anyway, uh, Atlanta-based Delta does not say what uh, regional aircraft the CRJ-900s will replace, nor which Delta connection carrier will operate them. 
However, they are likely to replace either the Bombardier CRJ-700s or the Embraer 170s with 69 seats and are comparably sized to the 70-seat CRJ-900s. The air, uh, airline already has 82 CRJ-700s uh, operated by Endeavour Air, ExpressJet Airlines, GoJet Airlines and SkyWest Airlines in the fleet at the end of March. Uh, it also had 20 East uh, Embraer's 170s operated by Republic Airlines. Uh, Delta is in the process of winding down its feeder agreement with ExpressJet, and this includes the removal of 30 CRJ700s for Delta, which has yet to name a replacement. The mainline carrier has 151 CRJ900s, uh, and Delta's order is the second for the Bombardier CRJ family from the U.S. A, uh, this year, with the earlier one being uh, American Airlines, who ordered 15 for PSA, the one we were talking about earlier, uh, earlier in uh, May, I think. Indeed. Bombardier! That's better. Sorry, I was... <laughs> oh, phew. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Oh, I was coming out over all unnecessary all the way through that. <laughs> <laughs> Bombardier? Yeah. Honestly, where's the fun in that? Uh, <laughs> Come on, it's well, all about beer we, on this uh, show. End the commercial news mm. segment. Uh, next up is a, a video interview that Carlos and I did uh, when we went to uh, Bruntingthorpe uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the weather was absolutely perfect during the day, and it was just starting to turn uh, towards the end of the afternoon. But uh, we did some fantastic interviews, and here's another one. And uh, this is the one where we interviewed the crew of the Handley Page Victor Tanker. And we talked to the three gentlemen there uh, who were on the Black Buck mission to the Ascension Islands uh, during the Falklands War. And it makes for a really interesting uh, historic interview, I think. So uh, let's have a look and a listen. So we are here next to the Victor Tanker at Bruntingthorpe. And uh, we're here with uh, Mike, Bob and Glyn. And uh, they're the team that uh, fly and look after the aircraft. So. Uh, who should we pick on first? Uh, Glyn, so tell us a bit about uh, what you do here with the Victor. Twice a year on the bank holidays, May and uh, August 2nd bank holidays, we uh, prep the aircraft and taxi it and wind it up and taxi it down the runway. On, uh, before all the cars blocked the runways, we used to get up to 100 knots or so, stream the parachute and turn around and then go back and show it off to the crowd. And we've done that for about the last 10 years, something like that. Uh, but this year, because of the restrictions, we're only going to taxi it up and down uh, quite slowly. So we haven't taxied it for about eight months. So this, we, yesterday we prepped it and the engine started first time more or less and with a little bit of tickling and trying to get generators and hydraulics working. And it's all ready to go in about an hour just over an hour's time. We're looking forward to that as well. So are they. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone's looking forward to seeing this particular aircraft today. So, Bob, tell us a bit about yourself. What's, uh, what's your role here with the uh, Victor? Uh, well, I spent quite a lot of time on K1 Victors initially in the early 70s and then flew the Mark II in the 80s. Uh, in 82, I was crewed up with these two guys and we got involved in the Falklands uh, War, of course. 
So we all deployed to Ascension on the 18th of April, 1982, and then uh, we, of note, participated in Blackbutt 1, which was the first of the bombing missions against Port Stanley. Wow, that must have been some experience. Well, it was. It was an interesting night. Uh, inevitably, because it was the first of um, a series of bombing raids, uh, we had to learn all the lessons on that first trip, and in many ways that formed the the blueprint, if you like, for the follow-on missions. Uh, all in, there were some seven missions planned, of which five were completed. But the first one, Blackbutt One, was always going to be the most tentative because we were learning as we went along. And uh, sure enough, they didn't let us down. A um, number of unserviceabilities. A couple of aeroplanes had to turn back, and then uh, one guy in particular had a fairly serious fuel leak. Fuel leak, and his return to Ascension wasn't assured initially and then on the uh, final part of the mission we were left quite short of fuel and uh, needless to say the inbound wave the second wave that was launching to recover the Vulcan ended up having to be completely remastered and uh, fortunately one of the airplanes was sent to us to give us some necessary fuel about uh, a couple of thousand miles south of the island before we could get back so Bob tell us a bit about the characteristics then of the Victor well, this was the follow-on aircraft from the Mark I, which itself was a bomber and then converted into the tanker. With this aeroplane, they added the underwing tanks, the large bulbous tanks mid-span, and the larger intakes show that the engines were much more powerful, the Conway, almost twice as powerful as the original Sapphires. So the aeroplane was given a massive boost in terms of performance, but it still had the centerline hose and the two wing hoses to enable it to be a very flexible tanker. And even in 1982, although it had been in service for probably the basic aeroplane for the best part of 30 years, it certainly, you know, pulled its punches uh, through the Falklands War. Wow, and what's she like to fly? I always enjoyed flying the aeroplane. It's a bit of a beast. It's a bit heavy initially. It's a bit heavy longitudinally. But um, one of the thrills in the role, in this role, in the air tanking role, was that we did a lot of close formation and also were able to tank, take fuel from another tanker. So that meant we spent a lot of time close up underneath another tanker. So that was, from a pilot's point of view, um, a great thrill. Uh, Mike would be better placed to explain what he thought of it while we were horsing around <laughs> behind another aeroplane. Um, and of course, uh, it did concentrate the mind while you were literally only 20 feet or so from the back end of another aeroplane, particularly on Blackbutt One, uh, you know, six hours into the mission when uh, everything started to go squirrely and we found ourselves in the midst of a bunch of thunderstorms. Which we've got plenty of around, well, near around the UK today, I think, as well. Well, we're hoping to get this run in, as Glenn said, before the weather comes yeah. in. So we'll uh, hopefully fire it up in about 30 minutes and uh, hopefully she'll work well and we'll uh, impress the crowds as usual. So, Mike, what's, uh, what's your role here? Um, I'm an air electronics officer. Um, this aircraft, um, I first started flying it as a bomber um, at RAF Wittering in 1964. And I've stuck with the Victor K2 all through my flying career. Um, so I flew it as a blue steel low-level bomber um, on QRA uh, with a nuclear weapon on. Um, I then went on to do uh, strategic reconnaissance with this aircraft as well. It was converted. Uh, into carrying cameras 
Um, it also covered many uh, nuclear tests by the Chinese and by the French uh, governments and we would go and do air sampling uh, from either uh, places like Midway in the South Pacific, um, or Shemir in the Aleutian Islands, or even from Lima in Peru. And uh, we would uh, collect samples for people at Aldermaston to uh, analyze and uh, work out exactly where those governments were in the development of a nuclear weapon. And then I moved on to tanking, and that's where I first met Bob. Um, again, I stuck with 715 and the K2. It's 715 litters my logbook. Um, so I've done 25 years of flying in the, in the Victor II, over 5,000 hours in it, and uh, I've got a, a great deal of respect and, uh, and love for the airframe, and this particular one, because it uh, is unusual. It did every roll, every mark, uh, it was converted uh, four times and, and finished up um, as, um, as a tanker. And of course, historically, it was, as Bob said, on Ascension Island for the Falklands War, but it also was in Bahrain for Gulf War I, uh, where um, 55 Squadron, uh, the only tanker squadron left then, uh, flew 299 missions and didn't miss one mission. So we can say this, you know, this old lady here um, has a strong history uh, behind it. it. It flew 38 missions in Gulf War I, and as I say, never missed a takeoff. So Mike, what's it take to keep this aircraft flying? Well, us three, we're, we're very fortunate. Uh, having been trained on the Victor, we basically swan up when it's uh, going to have a run. And uh, whilst we have great respect for our engineers, there isn't much that we can do to keep it running. We rely on them as aviation enthusiasts. Uh, and very few of them are XREF personnel. We have an, an XREF airframe engines man, uh, but all the rest are just really keen aviation enthusiasts and they're the ones that keep the uh, systems uh, in good order they um, as you saw just now they're doing the, uh, the tires for us they do the oils for us uh, and then they hand it over to us to go and enjoy ourselves we uh, think that we're pleasing the crowd but uh, if we put our hand on our heart uh, this is really pleasing ourselves you know. so we want to wrap up now then guys one last question before we finish for each one of you so start off with you Glenn uh, it's a question we ask all the people we interview at air shows around the world. It's one question, put you on the spot, give them the chance to fly any aircraft in the world, albeit uh, retired or still flying, commercial, military, GA, what would, what would you jump into the seat of? Concorde. Concorde. No Bob? doubt. <laughs> Bob? I'm a bit more old school, probably a Mosquito. Mosquito, mm, good choice. Uh, mine would definitely be a passenger, note the brevet. I don't have, if it is a skill, pilot skills, uh, Spitfire. Spitfire. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, guys, for your time today. It's been great and fascinating to speak to you. And I'm sure the listeners will love it. So uh, on behalf of us, thanks for your time. Thank you. I must be honest, I'm not at all surprised by some of those choices, actually. The Spitfire <laughs> didn't surprise me at all as a choice. Concord surprised me a little bit, especially for from someone so wrapped up in sort of mili militaria, if you see what I mean. I was quite surprised by that as a choice. The thing that I never it never ceases to amaze me about the enthusiasm for these folks that have flown these things, mm. and every air show that I've been to, and we've we've done interviews with with a few people now, yeah. uh, their enthusiasm and their keenness to talk about their careers yeah. and, and what 
aircraft they've flown uh, operationally or engineering wise it's been absolutely fantastic so they are so generous to we just rock up with a, with a mic and the camera we yeah. didn't you know we just said right can you do us a quick uh, you know yeah. 10, 10 minute interview and, and there we did it so uh, yeah it was really good so uh, yeah really fascinating day at Brandingthorpe and we've got some uh, some more to come we uh, have indeed well. yeah and you know and I've got to say for listeners that may not be familiar with that aircraft um, it's a beautiful looking airplane it's really menacing looking uh when you look at the, <laughs> uh, the wings that swoop down and the detail that swoops up and uh and the, the engine intakes it's it's just uh, an, a very unusual and beautiful looking mm. aircraft yes, yeah definitely so, yeah, yeah yeah no it's it, it, it's good well and, and uh, as i say a few more few more still to come but uh nev your your camera is uh just wonderful it has to be said i mean the, the visuals are just just a one mate it's brilliant Yes, and I'm um, just look, well. I've not had a lot of experience with it yet. We've used it a few times on yeah. some shoots, and uh, we'll be using it a lot at Farnborough in a few. I weeks suspect time. we might well be. Yes, yes absolutely. Yes. Looking be, for should be good. So, Indeed, uh, yeah. make sure you bring plenty of batteries with you. I think for that one. Yes, yeah. I think, uh, yes, <laughs> and and some good charging cables. And, uh, agreed. Uh, agreed. Um, so, so right, um, Matt. Just remind me what we do, uh, we are doing something else before the military sector. We are indeed yes. yes. So uh, one of yeah. our very loyal listeners, the the legend that is Matt Bunting Frame. Uh, many of us obviously are familiar with him in the BFF group. Now him and several other of our listeners all took a trip down to the Wings uh, over Illawarra uh, show, and he sent us a little interview uh, from that. G'day guys. A few weeks ago I interviewed Chris Tibbetts from Beach Adventures from the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, Australia. We conducted the interview at Wings Over Illawarra, which is Australia's second largest air show, held at Illawarra south of Sydney every May. Chris is a very experienced pilot with over 20 years of flying experience holding various ratings and also has experience as an air boss at various Australian air shows. Chris and his wife Hayley are proud owners of a 1952 Beach 18. Some people call the Beach 18 a twin beach. For Australia, this model is very rare. Now, if you're thinking what a Beach 18 looks like, think 1930s, think twin radial, think tail dragger, think Lockheed Electra, and scale it back just a bit. I was lucky enough to see Chris and Haley's Beach 18 in flight at Illawarra. Chris teaming up with Paul Bennett from Paul Bennett Air Shows to put on an amazing display. For Australian skies, the Beach 18 has quite a distinctive note. Now, if you're wondering what makes a Beach 18 so important, the simple fact that it was produced between 1937 and 1970 is enough. There were 9,000 airframes produced, which, as of 1970, was a world record. The Beach 18 in its classic form, as I mentioned, was a tail dragger, though later models came out with a retractable tricycle landing gear. Over its production life, the Beach 18 came out in 32 variants with over 200 improvement modifications. The original Beach 18 from 1937 came out with 330 horsepower Jacob L6 radial engines with the option of Wright 9760Es. Later models came out with 450 horsepower Pratt & Whitney R985 engines. Towards the end of production, 14 airframes were produced with turboprops. The Beach 18 has been used as a light bomber a cloud seeder, a World War II training aircraft, is being used to ferry cargo, as well as being used by various airlines for regional use. The last Beach 18 was delivered to Japan Airlines in 1970. Militarily, 
The Beach 18 served with the Canadian military as well as the US, being used heavily during World War II and the Vietnam War by Air America. The Beach 18 was finally retired from service with the US military in 1976. Now, about Miss Maple. Her name really gives it away. She's a classic model being delivered to the Canadian military in 1952. In various reincarnations, Miss Maple also appeared in a movie called South Pacific. Miss Maple is being lovingly restored by Chris and Haley to travel around the country with their family. As described in the interview, they have this fantastic new business called Beach Adventures. Beach Adventures was set up to give people an experience flying in a classic aircraft around the picturesque Hunter Valley in New South Wales. If you ever find yourself in New South Wales, make the trip north to the Hunter Valley and look them up. Now for the interview. Sit back. It's only short, but I hope you do enjoy it. Catch you later. Matt, out. Morning, Timsey. How are you? Very well, thank you very much. So, you've got a bit of a story. Um, you've got an interesting aircraft. I what do. have you got? Um, I've got a Beach 18. A Beach 18? That's a, a bit of a, a rare bird for Australia, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's less than half a dozen in Australia. Three of this vintage, uh, as far as I know. Yes. Yeah. So, what's your background in aviation? I've always, I've always wanted to fly from yeah, from when I was a little child. Uh, my grandfather was in uh, Lancaster's in the Pathfinders in World War II. And so whether that sparked my interest or not, I've, I've got no idea. But, uh, finished school and took a loan out and got my licence and uh, started uh, doing charters in the Tiger Moth of the Newcastle Aero Club yes. at 18 years old and uh, sort of progressed from there. Just always been hanging around and can't get enough of it. So I think I met you once before about a year ago with Paul yes. Bennett, yep. and at that time your your Beach 18, or Miss Maple, wasn't yet uh, in the air, you are about to put some uh, props on it. But yes, yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came across it and how you came to decide upon this particular type of aircraft and that journey? Yeah, um, I, I heard about it through the grapevine, um, obviously everyone sort of knows everybody else in the aviation in the aviation industry, and uh, I heard, heard there was a Beach 18 sitting by the side. And it's a classic aeroplane. It's um, it's got round engines. It's got the you know, it's got the tail wheel. It uh, doesn't have a training wheel. She um, just sort of fits the bill. And we were after a family aircraft and something that we could sort of utilise at air shows just to offset the running costs. And it just happened to be the, the perfect find. And what initially we thought was just going to be a quick fixer upper and get her in the air turned into quite a project. So how long did it take you to uh, from time of acquisition to to uh wheels up for the first time. It's about two and a half years. Did you have to do much to, to poor old Miss Maple? Because <laughs> she looks absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah thanks mate. She, uh, yeah, she basically had the works and uh, as you said earlier, new propellers, all the interior was, was gutted out. We stripped it down because she had been out in the open for a while. Um, we did actually pull the aircraft right down into, into separate components, wings off, ripped, it, ripped the guts out, all the cockpit and all that sort of stuff, just basically we didn't want to be in a position where we found something later or something could happen later that you know, was obviously not ideal. Uh, so we figured once we had it apart, we'd do it all properly and, and go from go from there. So the, so the main the parts were all good and there was nothing major that needed to be replaced nothing with it? No stories of gore? No, no, mate, no. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 
biggest major component that had to be replaced were the propellers, mm. um, but obviously everything else had to be replaced. So uh, control cables, engine hoses, gaskets, uh, the spar had to be uh, stripped right back and inspected. Um, we had, so we had the wings off. Um, basically just, just gave her a good going over and lots and lots and lots and lots of little things. Now, I know, Tibsy, you've got a young family. It must have been pretty hard during that time whilst you're doing the aircraft it, up to uh, to balance it to you. It must it be a was, bit of an interesting yeah. story. It, <laughs> it was. So I think what we put into the aircraft more was the time, um, is what's invested, because I did spend a lot of time away from the family while I was doing it. Um, I was lucky enough that, that you know the guys could come out to the hangar and play around. So in the corner of the hangar, there's actually a big toy box, and the kids would come around and... That's and, fantastic. And, yeah, play around under the wing while I'm pulling stuff apart and cleaning stuff and, and doing all that. So, I, whilst we're talking now, your, your family's arrived. It's uh, obviously a, an aircraft that you, you guys want to keep in the family for, uh, for years to come. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's she's a cracking bit of gear, and uh, hopefully I, I can pass her off down the line uh, to Max. He's four years old. He loves aviation, and uh, hopefully one day he can pay the bills. <laughs> Here you go. Here's the keys. But guess, guess what? <laughs> guess what, mate? Guess what comes with it? Yes. So, you, you before you mentioned that you, you use the aircraft to offset the costs. How, how do people get to see your aircraft? Uh, so we we travel around. Uh, we do a lot of regional air shows, and obviously the aircraft's only only been in the air less than twelve months. Mm. So we're just getting it on the scene and uh, and getting it out there. Uh, we are planning in the next couple of months to uh, have an approval for adventure flights, which means people can come for a fly and take their family and, and basically just experience vintage aviation. Uh, so whereabouts are you guys looking to be based out of to, uh, to do that? Valley. Yeah, so uh, uh, quite, a, quite a short hop to the coast. Um, and I'm, not, I'm not sure how much time you spent around Newcastle and Lake Macquarie, but it's a beautiful area. Uh, we've got the Hunter Valley Vineyards very close by as well. Uh, so. It's, it's quite it's quite a handy area. Uh, it's quite close to everything. We're not in the midst of a, of a big city like Sydney. Yes. Um, and uh, it's a relatively short flight anywhere if we want to go up the coast, if we want to go inland, if we want to come down to um, events like this, it's, um, it's all sort of within reach. So we've also just, when we were talking last night, you mentioned about the flying characteristics of this aircraft and, and its idiosyncrasies. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? What makes the Beach 18 a Beach 18 as a flying piece of kit. <laughs> no worries. Well, you've got those two beautiful Pratt & Whitney 985s pulling you along. Um, the aircraft does get along quite well. It has a very um, very useful load. So uh, this aircraft with its maximum takeoff weight will carry close to two tonnes, including fuel. Um, in the air, it is surprisingly agile. So uh, it's, it's roll and pitch, uh, sorry, uh, roll and yaw is actually quite light. The pitch can be a little bit heavy, we need to offset that with the trim because it does have a very large elevator. So, um, especially at higher speeds when we're displaying that we are working the trim with quite a bit. Uh, but in the air, she's uh, surprisingly agile and um, it's a lot to fly. Yesterday, we were watching it. I was uh, standing next to your wife whilst you were up in the air with Paul and the way you guys were able to throw her around in the air was absolutely <laughs> incredible. Like, I couldn't believe that something that big could actually move in the way that you guys were able to show her off. Yeah, thanks, mate. She, um, they are, they are quite, quite a nimble machine. Um, as lo- as long as you're on top of it, and obviously uh, when we're displaying, we're obviously thinking worst case scenario. So we are in the turns, even though it does look like we get a bit slow. We're always above blue line, so if we lose an engine, um, we're we're obviously still at that speed where we can maintain control of the aircraft. And 
I wouldn't say smoke and mirrors, but a lot of the stuff we, we do in the display is, is obviously tailored, so we show off the handling characteristics of the aircraft. So. so, with your venture, with your tours, how can people get in contact with you? Uh, at this stage, probably the best way to get in contact is uh, either via Facebook at Beach Adventures. Um, beach is spelt with the two E's, as, as the aircraft is a beachcraft, uh, or our webpage, which is uh, beachadventures.com.au. To finish off the interview, I had one more question for Chris. Here's his response. So, Tibsy, given the opportunity, and I know you've flown a lot of classic birds. <laughs> what do I want to fly? What do you want to fly? <laughs> uh, a P-38 or a Lancaster. So, um, I think I'm sort of giving myself away there with a with a twin tail and, <laughs> yeah. and the twin engines or four You've engines. Probably got more of an opportunity with the P-38 than you had the Lancaster. Oh, yeah, I do, yeah. Um, obviously, Relatively unrealistic, but you never know. Hey. I've got a few years left in me yet. Hey, as you say, aviation's a very small community and you never know what can happen. That's exactly right, mate. Yeah. I thank you very much for your time this morning and uh, no worries, mate. I wish you all the best with, with your new, new venture and I'd love to come up and uh, and go out with you on a flight sometime. Well, I'm sure we can sort something out, mate. Brilliant. Thank you very much. No Well, apologies for the issues with some of the audio there. I don't know quite what happened. It didn't sound that bad before, so I'll try and work out what I did wrong there. So apologies to to Matt for that. I obviously screwed that up somewhere along in the edit, so humble apologies. Uh, (laughs) Can't get the staff, Nev, I tell you. It's awful. Well, there you are. But but look, what a fascinating story. And what a fascinating gentleman he was speaking to as well. Absolutely. I love that. It's a a beautiful-looking aircraft, isn't it? It's a Beach 18, wasn't it? Yes. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, also known as a twin beach, uh, typically is uh, how it's referred to, or that's how I've always referred to it. And uh, when I was uh, an undergraduate, Ohio University had a twin beach uh, that's part of its training program, but it was one that uh, the uh, one of the pilots actually tore the t- tail wheel off of it, wow. and it was converted to a nose wheel and a tricycle landing gear. And it just, just never looked the same, but those beautiful tail dragging twin beaches are wonderful aircraft. Big radial engines, great sound, beautiful to look at. Beautiful. No, it's it, it's it's great. No, and thanks, Matt. Again, um, he sent us a couple of uh, interviews in actually that, that have been really good. So yeah, thanks for for taking the time. And uh, any listeners, if you if you do get the opportunity to chat to a pilot, you only have to ask them one question once you've had a chat. Obviously, you all know what that is. Um, but uh, yeah, do do feel free to send uh, any of your contributions into podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Right, so next up then, it's uh, the military segment. So uh, we've got a few stories that we're going to rattle through. Uh, So if you're ready, Matt. Certainly am. And if you're ready, Micah. All set. And Owen. I'm here ready. Off we go. Well, this is the, uh, the, on the uh, Flight Global website and the never-ending story, it seems, about the delays <laughs> to the KC-46 tanker. But Boeing has finally reached a, an agreement 
with the U.S. Air Force to deliver its first KC-46 Pegasus tanker in October of this year. Uh, the Chicago-based aerospace manufacturer was contracted to deliver the first batch of 18 KC-46s by August 2017, but missed that deadline after having production issues. The U.S. Air Force said it now expects that the first 18 aircraft will be delivered by April of next year, 2019. This agreement paves the way for the delivery of the first tanker to the U.S. Air Force 16 and a half years after the U.S. Senate first proposed a replacement plan for the KC-135 Strato tanker, which was a 1950s era machine. Uh, the first KC-46 will be delivered to McConnell Air Force Base in Kansas. Then aircraft will be delivered to uh, Altus Air Force Base in Oklahoma and Pease Air Force Base in New Hampshire. Boeing said that it uh, has 43 aircraft in some stage of production, including 34 aircraft, which are now in the final stages of build. This has been a long time coming. It's going to be a great day to get this capability to them, says Leanne Carre, President and Chief Executive of Boeing Defence. There's a lot of people who have worked countless hours and have just been tireless in their commitment to them. To them sorry. The US Air Force and Boeing are still discussing on how to resolve remaining Category 1 deficiencies on the KC-46, such as sunlight glare problems with the aircraft's refueling room camera and design problems that cause the drogue refueling hose to disconnect in certain situations. The KC-46 is a converted 7672C freighter that can be used by the military for aerial refueling or cargo transport. The tanker's boom system can transfer up to 4,540 litres of fuel per minute to other aircraft whilst in flight and its Cobham-supplied hose and drogue systems located on both the plane's wing and centreline enable the tanker to refuel probe-equipped aircraft with up to 1,510 litres of fuel per minute. So finally, uh, this aircraft is finally going to go off the end of the production line um, and make its way to the US Air Force. A small part Which of me is thinking, actually, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I've got, I've got to be honest. <laughs> Did you notice that they said they planned on delivering them in October through April? They didn't plan on delivering working ones, though. Right, that's right. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Not making any promises, yeah. <laughs> it does and, so. and to put things into perspective for those that don't really follow the military, the, the aircraft that it's replacing, the Boeing KC-135, is a 707. So that's really how old it is. There aren't mm. any more flying uh, 707s in commercial use, but the Air Force has been using the 707, the KC-135, as a tanker, and it's still in service right now. So that's, uh, that's a bit of an issue. I'm hoping to see a KC-46 because they will be, as I mentioned, uh, uh, basing them in, in Pease Air Force Base. In, uh, actually, it, it's Pease uh, Airport now in mm. New Hampshire. That's only about 50 miles away from me, so I'm hoping to get down and see them when they come up. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be good, isn't it? So we're gonna move on to the next story now. This is on the. Uh, he said, "I'm I'm not very good at this doing all doing it all myself." <laughs> business. Sorry about that. Uh, sorry. So Pilot Web is the it's the uh, uh, what am I reading? News story. That's right. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Pilot Web is the website, and the headline is "Airspace Restrictions Announced for Royal Air Force 100 Flypast." So the Civil Aviation UK Civil Aviation Authority has announced announced a series of airspace restrictions to protect the flypast in July to commemorate 100 years 
of the Royal Air Force. Uh, restrictions will be in place for the main flypast on Tuesday the 10th of July and also the rehearsal which will take place on one day between Tuesday the 3rd and Friday the 6th of July. The flypast, comprising a large number of RAF aircraft, will start to form in the vicinity of the Wash, the North Sea and Southwold, Suffolk and Southend. Wow, right on our my part of the world then for a change. It will then route via Swaffham, Thetford and Colchester towards London to overfly Buckingham Palace. The aircraft will then disperse over Kent, Surrey, Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire, Gloucestershire and Wiltshire. Further flypasts will take place at the Royal International Air Tattoo, RAF Fairford, each day from the 13th to the 15th of July. The flypast elements will form up over Shropshire and route over Worcestershire and Gloucestershire before overflying RAF Fairford and dispersing over Wiltshire. The airspace restrictions have been put in place due to the large number of aircraft involved. The restrictions apply to all airspace users, including drones. Pilots and drone operators are reminded to take account of restrictions when planning flights. The restrictions are in place for the safety of all aircraft as airspace infringements pose a significant risk to safety. Uh, on Saturday the 2nd of June 2018 at the Torbay Air Show, an aircraft infringed the restricted area resulting in an air prox with a display aircraft. The CAA takes all airspace infringements seriously and due to the severity of this incident the pilot's license has been provisionally suspended pending an investigation. For further information please see the Aeronautical Information Circulars M043-2018 and M04-2018 and M051. Uh, 2018 on the Nats Aeronautical Information Services website. So if you do need to know what uh, I presume your NOTAMs, that's that's essentially what I'm talking about, isn't it? Yes. Something along those. So if you need yeah. if you need uh, to know um, the the routes essentially and where the uh, the restrictions are going to be in place, then those uh, the Nats website is where you need to go. But of course we we had a, something similar, didn't we, when we were at. Uh, um, Duxford, didn't we? Where I think was it the Red Arrows had to be halted because there was a, a microlight straying into the uh, yes, the there was and uh, ca causing some difficulty there mm. locally. And uh, yeah. but yes, they they just had to hold off for was it five minutes? It was or a little while, wasn't it? It was about five six minutes, wasn't it? While yeah. they were waiting to sort of <clears throat> shoo this this you know um, the microlight out of the way. Yes. <laughs> It's a it's a it's a funny one though. But the, this flypast looks amazing. I can't wait to. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to head out towards Southwold if if on one of these days if I can find out exactly when, because uh, I bet that'll be some amazing uh, amazing signs off the east coast sites off the east coast there. I think actually, because oh, Southwold yeah, is not uh, Southwold is only about it's about twelve thirteen miles away from me. Mm. So oh, cool. Yeah. Excellent. So the uh, the next story then uh, is for you, uh, Micah. Well, all right then. <laughs> and <laughs> this one is from Flight Global, and the U.S. Air Force is set to begin dual-mode ramjet design for a hypersonic vehicle. The Air Force has set plans to begin a competitive phase of a plan to develop a dual-mode ramjet for a new class of missile and aircraft with top speeds of over Mach 3. 
two contract awards, a total of worth a total of ten million dollars for design and testing of a dual mode ramjet are now anticipated. The Air Force uh, Research Laboratory says in a notice dated 8th of June. The acquisition will begin with the signing of an initial task orders worth up to $200,000 each. And uh, it's part of the Air Force, what's A? I don't know if I put that in there before. Uh, Air Force Research Laboratories enabling technologies for high-speed operable systems. Um, the Air Force Research Technology Laboratories unveiled the purpose of the high-speed technology system program in 2016 as goals to complete the design of a dual-mode ramjet, uh, build a test article, and perform wind tunnel and free jet testing, the acquisition notice says. Now, basically, what this is, to go over it just a little bit easier, it would be a gas, use a gas turbine to take off and accelerate the vehicle to faster than Mach 2. At that point, the propulsion system would transition the thrust to a dual mode ramjet. In the first mode, the aircraft is flying over Mach 3, but the airflow entering the engine intake is slowed to subsonic speed. As the aircraft accelerates beyond Mach 5, the flow entering the ram engines becomes supersonic. It's part of a concept that um, has been uh, put together by Lockheed Martin uh, as the heart of the SR-72. Now, you all know the SR-71 Blackbird. That only goes about Mach 3, which is about 2,200 miles an hour. That came out in the late 50s. We haven't had an aircraft that we know of go faster than that since. So it's about time, and they've been talking about this for years in popular science and popular mechanics, of coming up with an aircraft that's going to go faster. And this is the first step that we're actually taking to develop it, as far as we know. Yeah, interesting, isn't wow. it? But uh, yes, a huge development. But the, uh, as with so many things in aviation, uh, really difficult things to do like that, this always take a long time in coming, don't they? They do. Yeah. So the, uh, the final military story then, Owen, is for you. And it's on the RAF uh, website as well. Are you there, Owen? <laughs> Has he he's he, muted he's he has muted himself i don't know if he realizes that okay okay all right fair enough something's obviously gone horribly wrong there uh okay i'll, I'll take this one then so yes. this is oh no hang on he's unmuted maybe we can hear him now are you there how you doing ah, yeah, there we go a bit right. of a problem with my touch screen um, <laughs> my bad <laughs> so this harps back to uh the um uh the it was it uh, Matt's military story, so the second story. And yeah. it basically uh, details all of the um, centenary celebrations for the RAF. For the so it's RAF on the raf.mod.uk yeah. website. Uh, and it says, on the 10th of July, 100 days after our official 100th birthday, uh, join us in London for our centerpiece event, the RAF 100 Parade and Flypast. It says uh, over a thousand servicemen and women will take part in a parade on the Mall at 11.25 a.m. And then at 1 p.m. witness the historic flypast where the 100 uh, aircraft representing the RAF's history will fly over Buckingham Palace. It promises to be a spectacle never seen before and one that won't be seen again for a very, very long time. How can you take part? Well, this uh, you can take a front row seat and experience the celebrations in person with viewing positions along the length of the Mall in London. Or you can watch uh, live coverage on the BBC or stream on BBC iPlayer to watch the events as they unfold live. Alternatively, you can listen to the BBC Radio 2 for further coverage. 
Oh. And if you do have any photos, or videos, or comments, you can use the hashtag uh, hashtag RAF100. Um, so there's a whole lot of other things that are happening uh, in and around the country um, for the RAF100 uh, tour, um, including uh, a range uh, covering the history of World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, uh, right up to the modern era. And you'd be able to get close to some of these aircraft in a few different places. So on the 6th to the 9th of July, you'll be able to see them in London. There's details of uh, details of that on the RAF's website on where, where exactly uh, they'll be. Same uh, goes for the 10th to the 12th of August in Newcastle. Uh, that's Newcastle, Northern Ireland, uh, not Newcastle in, uh, in, in the UK, England. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 25th to 27th in August in Birmingham, 31st of August to the 2nd of September in Glasgow, and the 14th to the 16th of September in Manchester. And uh, they say it's got a really good uh, educational focus, so uh, yeah. great for young uh, aviation fans out there. Uh, lots of activities uh, designed to encourage interest and participation from young people. So uh, there's so many events going on uh, to do with the mm. RAF 100. And if you are around uh, the UK this summer, do take a look at the RAF website if you'd uh, like to if you'd gonna, like to go visit some of this stuff. I mean, it's going to be an amazing, you know, sort of fly pass and things. I mean, the the, the old Battle of Britain um, fly pass, I know we're sort of quite familiar with that here in the UK, but that is something to behold. I mean, I remember it from Duxford when we were there. I mean, so many air, iconic aircraft all flying together. Um, it's just, uh, and uh, was it the Spit, were they at uh, Duxford, they also did like a sort of like Spitfire dogfight, didn't they? That was just, yeah. just fantastic. But uh, glad to see that the RAF are making a big, and actually the UK generally making yeah, a big noise making a big thing about, about the centenary. It, yeah. It's uh, re really important, and I'm I'm glad that they're doing. It is, yeah, rightly so, events. rightly so. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. Indeed. Right. Well, that's the end of the military segment, and uh, next up is one of Pilot Pip's segments, and uh, he sends this in to us almost every week. I have to say, I think he's doing quite a nice job for it as well. And this is his uh, PPE segment. Indeed, yes. Uh, he's he's uh, just as he says at the top of this. He's actually just had a. He's come back from five days off. But this is his diary of the week before. Plane safety from the flight deck with pilot Pip. Hello everybody, welcome to another PPE, Pips Pilot Experience. I'm in the middle of five days off at the moment, but I have been at work last week and it started off with a very busy few days flying all over the place, three or four flights every day. Uh, I then got what we call double walk-alled, uh, which is two very early consecutive starts in a row. I won't go into the details, but it uh, basically means that after my second day of uh, very early starts, I have to have 36 hours off, including uh, two nights, which ended up in Paris, actually. So I had a lovely 36 hours off in Paris, spent a, a really nice day walking around the old city, um, seeing the sights, went to the Cathedral of Notre Dame, as made famous in the novel by Alexander Dumas, or Damas, as Homer Simpson would say. Took a nice boat trip down the Seine River, and visited some of the uh, less well-known sites of Paris. Really nice day, and then finished it off with a nice dinner and watching England thrash Tunisia in a nice little bar 
over in Montmartre. So really nice. Doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's, uh, it's lovely. But anyway, uh, I did end up at some point, uh, one of the first couple of days, at Farnborough Airport, which is kind of London's BizJet Executive Airport. It's, um, a lot of cities have their own airport, which is dedicated to BizJet stuff. New York has Teterborough, uh, Paris has Le Bourget, etc. And Farnborough is a really busy airport, okay? There's no two ways about it. Uh, as we taxied in, we landed there and taxied in, uh, there was not a spare inch of parking space anywhere on the apron. It was totally full with aircraft, and mostly of the, the larger uh, size when we're talking about BizJet, so the Globals and the larger Gulf Streams, the G550s, and the G650, which I have to say is just a wonderful-looking aeroplane. They got the proportions just right. It's got curves in all the right places. Uh, the G550, which our company flies, eh, it's okay. I prefer the Global, but the 650, they, I don't know what it is, but they got something right with that aeroplane. Really beautiful thing. Anyhow, there were loads of them, uh, absolutely packed, and Farnborough has just become so busy over the years. Always was busy, but now it's super busy. Um, one of the, I suppose, challenges of flying at Farnborough Airport is that it's located in Class G uncontrolled airspace which means that anyone can fly there. You don't even need to be talking to uh, air traffic control to be flying in the local area. You Obviously, if you're going to be landing at the airport, it is a towered, fully controlled airport, but the surrounding airspace is Class G. So when we're flying in and out of there, one of the things we talk about a lot when we're doing our briefings, when we're identifying our, our threats and threat mitigation during the briefings, is the fact that it's uncontrolled. So uh, there will be, or possibly could be, light aircraft gliders, balloons, etc., flying around, not squawking, not talking to ATC. So we really do take a great deal of effort to get our eyes outside the cockpit and have a good look around and try and search out for these, these um, potential threats. One of the things that I always like to do there is to keep the airspeed really low once we're coming in out of the London controlled airspace or if we've just taken off from Farnborough. I'll try and keep the speed all the way back at 180 knots if I can just to give us a bit more opportunity and a little bit more time to, to see and avoid. And for the other people as well, it gives them a better chance of acquiring us. Now, of course, Farnborough Radar, uh, they provide different levels of radar service. We always, in fact, we're required by our SOPs to request a deconfliction service. Farnborough Radar there will give us information on conflicting traffic and give us vectors to avoid that traffic. And that's not a particularly unusual situation in the UK. There are other quite busy airports that are inside Class G airspace, Oxford, uh, Biggin Hill, to name just a few. Um, but ideally, as pilots, what we would like is some protected airspace. We would like some controlled airspace. And I've often wondered why they don't have any controlled airspace around Farnborough, because the number of movements compared to other airports which do have controlled airspace would certainly suggest that it should have some. Now controlled airspace, even class D airspace, which is what we're talking about here, that would provide us with the protection of operating in a 100% known environment. So flying class D airspace, if you're a GA aircraft, you'd have to call up air traffic control and ask permission to fly in that bit of uh, controlled airspace. You couldn't just be flying through willy-nilly without permission. And Farnborough is an interesting case. They have been seeking approval for a number of years to have their own controlled airspace around the airport. 
Um, but it is, um, they're in a tricky position because they've got a number of different parties involved here. Obviously, the airports and the operators would like controlled airspace, but there are other people out there as well. The GA community, for one, who are, uh, as a rule, quite anti-controlled airspace, if you like, and, and I'll, I can kind of understand that view, and I'll perhaps touch on that in a second. Uh, the other big player down at Farnborough is Lasham Gliding, which is just to the southwest of Farnborough. Lasham Gliding Airfield is probably the biggest, if not one of the bigger, gliding centres in all of Europe. And they seem to have, from what I understand, uh, an unusual <laughs> amount of influence at the CAA when it comes to airspace policy. Um, so they've been putting up a bit of a fight when it comes to implementing controlled airspace. But really, if you have a look around the UK, have a look at some of the other smaller regional airports that do have controlled airspace and, and then compare them to Farnborough. So, for instance, Sheffield-Doncaster Airport, a little bit further north, has a block of Class D airspace around it. And that has, uh, according to the 2017 stats, they have about 17,000 movements, aircraft movements per year. Um, I don't know how many of those are commercial and how many of those are just GA, you know, private aircraft Cessnas and PA-28s and, and alike. I suspect quite a few of that 17,000 is just private movements, but they do have their own protected airspace, okay? Uh, let's have a look at Southend, London Southend Airport. has about 25,000 movements annually. Uh, again, probably a bigger portion of those are commercial air traffic, but certainly there'll be some... Uh, a fair number of that will be private GA traffic. And again, they've recently had their own airspace. In fact, quite a big block of airspace as well. I know it kicked up quite a fuss in the GA community. Uh, moving a bit further afield, Norwich Airport has about 37,000 movements, and they've got their own airspace. Now, a lot of those, are, I believe, is helicopter for the North Sea. I know they've taken on quite a lot of that traffic recently. Uh, and then you've got Farnborough, which has 27,000 movements, and they're all commercial air transport movements. There's very little GA goes on at Farnborough. It's, as I said earlier, it's a dedicated exec bizjet type airport. So when you compare the numbers to other similar airports, they've certainly got the traffic numbers going through to warrant having their own airspace. Now, as I say, the GA community generally seem to be at least from my perception, seem to be quite anti-airspace. And when you have a look at a, a southern UK aeronautical map, it is a bit of a mess, it has to be said, uh, at first glance. The reality is it's actually reasonably simple, but uh, you know, there's a lot of airfields with their own airspace, and the interaction with the London TMA, it can get quite complicated. And I can't help feeling that the best solution here is probably just to start again from afresh. You know, this thing has developed over many decades, and perhaps it's time to start with a fresh sheet of paper and, and redesign this from scratch. But it is what it is, and, we, and we've got to deal with what we've got. But I, I don't really understand this reluctance on the GA side to accept controlled airspace. Now, the argument being that, I guess it's a loss of freedom, that they, they can't fly where and when they wish. But the reality is, and especially we're only talking about Class D airspace here, that I suspect... I don't have any stats to back this up, but probably 90 plus percent of all requests to enter controlled airspace are granted. But the perception seems to be that it's not worth the effort, perhaps, or you're adding to the controller workload, 
or you're afraid of being vectored or you're afraid of being given an unusual routing by ATC. I don't know. The reality is it's really very simple. Um, you know, and speaking with my GA hat on here, taking my professional hat off, putting my PA28 hat on, uh, in the small number of flights I've made recently, uh, it's been extremely simple. I've flown through the Birmingham airspace, thrown through the Luton airspace. Uh, very straightforward and nothing to be scared of at all. But uh, I can't help but feel that that perception is out there. And after all, it, it only adds uh, another layer of safety. It's, you know, if it's giving us an extra barrier separating fast jet traffic against slow uh, single engine traffic, then that can only be a good thing, right? Well, anyway, we'll have to wait and see. I know that it's been a long battle down at Farnborough, and perhaps something will happen in the future. Uh, I was lucky enough a year or so ago to be invited over to the Farnborough Tower and the Farnborough Radar Room to uh, have a tour around there and talk to some of the controllers there. And it was really quite enlightening, um, you know, as well as the tower there, which controls the movements at the airfield. That's also where Farnborough LARS is based, and LARS is Lower Air Space Radar Service. And Farnborough is the kind of central point for a very large portion of the southern UK, which provides what you would call in the, in the States flight following. They provide a, a radar flight information service there for a, probably, a, I don't know, most of the southeast of the country. Very, very busy uh, unit indeed. Anyway, that's all from me. I've um, got to go and prepare a flight of my own. I'm going to be flying tomorrow, hopefully, if my aircraft is back from its annual maintenance check. And if the weather's nice, I'm going to be flying down to see family in uh, Kent for the weekend. So I'm going to fly from Cranfield down to Rochester, which again will mean flying straight through the middle of the Luton Class D airspace. So looking forward to that tomorrow. Until the next time, um, see you all and fly safe. That was all very interesting. He keeps himself busy, doesn't he? Yes, it's all very... I think the thing is with the uh, different airspace restrictions, especially mm. there's so many uh, smaller airports and airfields around the London and South East area particularly. Mm. And when you get up the country and where you are, Matt, it's it's not so bad, but certainly yeah. in the South East uh, and the central part of the southern area is so uh, so chock-a-block that uh, it's not surprising that, um, that they might have to have a rethink of the whole thing yeah. uh, one of these days. I, don't know. I mean, I, I suppose it's the same. I mean, it's not just here, I suppose, because obviously here... Uh, we're sort of, a, you know, quite a rural, you know, a lot of East Anglia is quite rural. And I presume that's the same throughout the country. There are pockets of, of busy airspace as a result of um, sort of commercial airports and stuff. But I suppose, you know, however you dress it, dress it up. I, I know we take the mickey out of the fact that it's London, South End, London, Stansted. Uh, one day it'll be London, Manchester. Um, it, it's sort of, you know, it, it's sort of one of those... <laughs> those things they're so sort of close to uh, they are genuinely though i mean you know they are essentially sort of 30 40 miles you know around the periphery of london and when you do have so many major airports so close to it obviously that that airspace especially around farnborough must be so congested well i'm surprised frankly that it's not london farnborough <laughs> right yes good point yes, it you is. know the runway is large enough to accommodate that i don't <laughs> and they need more commercial space i don't understand why it's not happening right i, I, mean, I mean certainly uh, uh, <laughs> oxford which is you know the closest mm. one to, to me that's called london oxford uh, so is it? um yeah that's ah. a bit crazy yes it's <laughs> probably, probably, probably pu pushing a little bit isn't it yes yeah. 
Yeah. And by the way, I want to let you know, I don't know if you've noticed my hat, but uh, Pip and I were not in cahoots. I did not uh, put this hat on knowing what Pip was going to speak about Gulfstream, but nonetheless, <laughs> I agree with him. <laughs> There's an alarming level of continuity here in the show. We can't have that. We need to change the subject immediately. Yes. Uh, right. <laughs> Indeed. But no, thank you, Pip. Thank you very much for, for a great segment. And hopefully there'll be another one next week. So uh, mm. it's time to sort of start wrapping up, really. What uh, what has everybody got uh, in, uh, well, in their calendars? Wrap up, oh, oh, oh uh, hello. We've got another little bit of a military story that Do I we? think we should definitely... Uh, we definitely cover it. I'm surprised that we haven't covered it, actually. Nev, this isn't, uh, this isn't in the show notes. What do we do? What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> panic, panic. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Because it's from uh, Reuters.com, uh, oh, a very no. reputable source. Right. Um, and it says that Trump has ordered the creation of Space Force. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, really? Space Force. Micah, do you have anything thing. to add to this? <laughs> Uh, fortunately, nobody here is paying attention to him with that. That was just the silliest <laughs> idea that, that I have heard in the longest time. We already have a Space Force. It's called the, called Air, the Air Force, Force. <laughs> and it's yeah. in Cheyenne Mountain where they monitor everything in space in Colorado. I've been through there, and right. uh, it's just ridiculous, you know, and we also have NASA. And so between the two of them, Anyway, <laughs> they've probably got it covered, haven't they? Yes, I, I, I cannot take responsibility for the leader of the United States. <laughs> Nay, the leader of the free world is is quite often the argument. Oh. But, uh, I think that this. Uh, I, I feel that he's the kind of guy that would evacuate an aircraft with his baggage. So, right. I, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Ooh, said, his gold-plated baggage. Oh, of course, absolutely, very heavy, oh. of course. But he's the president of the United States. So obviously, he can do what he likes. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is a rather controversial t subject matter, so I'm going to stop you in your tracks there, Owen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we should. Uh, yes, I must admit, I did see this story in the week, and I did, I did literally look at it and think, oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, I, uh, I, th I think uh, it's just another one of his uh, little. Little, um, brilliant ideas absolutely brilliant it's, ideas it's exactly. always fun here in the US you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely any Rex, comments right you'd like to uh, Rex. <laughs> oh no no, no 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 let's not mention that word come on that's twice now uh, anything to add to that Nev uh, you know <laughs> Uh, no, not particularly. No, because whatever I say ends up being controversial anyway. So. <laughs> right, well, actually, um, just reading down in the article, it does say... Oh, that, you're uh, actually going to do it? Oh, wow. Okay. No, I'm not reading the article, <laughs> but I, I have read it. Uh, okay. Actually, it says that um, while the Pentagon is actually going to start uh, start preparing to implement Trump's order, right? it can't... Uh, the, uh, Trump actually can't do anything about it without Congress uh, because it would need uh, the budgetary approval of the U.S. Okay. Congress. Oh dear! Now we're now we're now we're sort of venturing into the realms of politics. I wonder if we should. Abort. No, I, I think that we should let it go. And I just yeah. think it would have been really nice if uh, our fearless leader had taken a civics class. But that's a right. See, the trouble is, is all I've got is the you know I've got the the Emperor's March in my in my head now from Star Wars. All I can hear is dun 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 dun. dun. 
<laughs> Presumably with with uh, Lord Trump uh, at the helm, but uh, anyway, perhaps that's where he's getting his. There's Marvel. a scary thought. Yes, that, maybe that's about where he's getting his ideas from. Uh, so uh, last weekend, I had a rather interesting time. Uh, some uh, some of you may actually realize may have uh, uh, sort of remember perhaps that it was the Great Yarmouth Air Show last weekend. So it was on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, one of the reasons why we didn't cover it actually was basically because it was an air display and there wasn't that you know there was lots of things for for the general public if you like to have a go on and things but there wasn't really a lot for us to to cover we couldn't interview pilots and stuff because one of the great advantages about it being over the uh, water obviously is that it's probably one of the most safe air shows you'll ever come across um, but of course there aren't pilots landing to interview uh, which is n- uh, not a great deal of us but I must say uh, hats off to Great Yarmouth they did an excellent job of organising a brilliant show uh, that was over two days. Uh, My personal thanks to Graham Haley, who I got to meet up with, because he actually came down on the Sunday, and it's his photos that I've got up on the screen here. So thank you very much to uh, Graham Haley for that. But it really was, despite the the weather doing its very best to try and be, to spoil our fun, I I must say it was a really good fun show. And it's, uh, some people have sort of, criticised it really for not appearing to be well organised but I have to say I strongly strongly disagree with that uh, I was actually there working for the the company that was operating the park and ride system and I have to say they 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 ran it I, I feel they ran it really 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 well it was you weren't waiting for the buses to be full if there was a group of 15 20 of you come they they literally then just released the bus so nobody at throughout the entire day nobody had to stand around waiting for the park and ride system to to sort of you know to take them home so i mean and it was a you know it was really nice it was a warm 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 enough day to uh sort of be walking around in 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 you know shorts and t-shirt but it, it, it was it was a lovely day and you gotta love the red arrows who uh sort of appeared on both the saturday and the sunday but um yeah, that's really that's really what I did over the weekend. Uh, there, presumably, you were coming back from your holiday. Uh, yes, well, actually, no, we did a Wednesday to Wednesday sort of yeah. thing. So, uh, yes, I, I on, on the weekend I was uh, in uh, Albufeira uh, in the Algarve in Portugal, which was very nice indeed. Just as I said earlier, it was spot on with the temperature. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we got back on Wednesday night uh, quite late, but uh, still recovering from that. Now I still feel quite tired. I think I need another <laughs> holiday to recover from you, the holiday. For a holiday to it's 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 because it was your honeymoon, Nev. That's what it is. You see, that's yeah. <laughs> indeed Uh, Uh, Micah what about you what have you been up to well uh, on Monday I was returning from DC and I think you may have a photo there Matt of uh, of my uh, Kreplet brother and good friend Eric who you've met toasting you uh, I don't know if you have it there in front of you. Ooh, where would I find with, that? Where did you send me that? Uh, it, it went through uh, through the, the the other photos that I sent you. Uh, I believe with the uh, in the chat application, whatever. Oh, okay. Was. Yes. Hang on. I'm, I'm trying now. Hang on. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, carry, the, everybody uh, keep talking. Uh, <laughs> we went to the the kosher nash, which is the name of a deli. Yeah. And uh, we toasted you with a pastrami sandwich and a corned beef sandwich, and had the waitress specifically take our picture so we could <laughs> send it to you because oh, we knew you dear. would like both. I, I have uh, bad news, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my no co-host, no, my no, my co-host has just arrived home. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Fortunately, we haven't got a microphone in front of us. Where did where did you send it to, Michael? I'm I'm struggling I, to find I, it. I sent it with WhatsApp. Ah, okay. Oh, hello. 
Oh, we've got a very weary Carlos has just uh, joined us in the studio. <laughs> Hello. Right, okay. Uh, splendid. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> there's, uh, Owen, what about you? What, have you? what have you got going on this week? Uh, for me, well, uh, last week I was uh, flying. I did two days of standby. Um, and I, it was kind of... Well, it was a, it was after a, a long sort of two weeks that I had. Uh, I had uh, recurrent training uh, where we have to do um, where we have to do the exams uh, for our safety and emergency procedures, our dangerous goods, security exams, all that sort of thing. Um, so I, I did those uh, about a week and a half ago now, um, and passed all those. So I'm good. To very good. Very good. Well done. <laughs> very, very well. And then uh, this week I have another little bit of flying to do. It's all short sectors, so I go out to uh, Lublin and back tomorrow, which is in Poland. Uh, Alborg, which is in Denmark, I want to say. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Uh, it's Alborg, just as well Nev's here, you know. Very, Obviously, very he's short, on the ball. Uh, yeah. Short flight. <laughs> Uh, and then I have two days of going to Napoli, and then another few days off. Um, so actually, really quite a, a, a an easy week this week, thankfully. <laughs> Sounds like a refreshing change then. Uh, yes. So uh, presumably you're back to to work this week, uh, Nev. That's going to be a bit of a shock for you, isn't it? Yeah, on, on Monday, I'm <laughs> uh, my first day back for nearly two weeks. So uh, yes, the the emails haven't been too bad, but there's just so much stuff. You know, you, Is you, there? To, you do have to turn it off after a while because otherwise yeah. you, I'm, you, you I, just spoil your holiday. I must admit, I did panic a bit because when I, when I had, I had to send you an email during the week and. Uh, <laughs> I got, I got I got this immediate reply back that came. I'm sorry, I'm unavailable to. I was just like, whoa, he's <laughs> unplugged. This is very frightening. I thought, God, it really is. It really is the honeymoon, isn't it? He's unplugged. Uh, good news, Micah. I have found the picture. There we are. That's the one that you were talking about. There, there. we go. This is it. Yes, yes. Sir. I, see, this brings back very fond memories of my time in in New York. This does. We were just thinking that the the next time you come out there, we may have to kidnap you and take you to this particular deli in New Jersey because, among the other pictures, they have a marvelous salad bar. But it's not any salad, salad? bar. It's pickles. <laughs> it's <laughs> tomatoes. It's potato salad and coleslaw and health salad. You, so you, you, you'll you love it. You say, you say the word salad, and I just glaze over. Glaze, glaze oh, over no, no. Really this sorry. is very different. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. There's probably a picture of that someplace, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, Nev, I suppose we'd better wrap up, really, haven't we? Indeed, and uh, many thanks to you, uh, Micah, for, for joining us today. Um, yeah. really Thank appreciate you so it. much. My pleasure. Love being with you guys. And for Owen as well, even though it had a bit of a technical moment at the start there, but uh, uh, it, it all kind of worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. No, and his camera's not been working all the way through the show. Uh, just, <laughs> yeah. just, just, just yeah. give it a press. You never know. We might get a quick glimpse of him before, before we fit. There he is, briefly. There it was, gone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we literally get to see it for about one second. Brilliant. Yeah, uh, the best-looking one of us all, and we can't see I him. I know, it it's not fair, is it? <laughs> 
yeah, absolutely outrageous. Anyway, never mind. I'm sure we'll. Uh, I'm sure we'll see you again uh, soon, Owen. And uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, time to wrap up, guys. Uh, from all of us here in the studio, Carlos is here. Come round this side, Carlos, and say oh, hello okay. to your to your beloved fans very quickly. There we go. There he is. Look. Hi, everyone. <laughs> hello. <laughs> hey Sorry, there. Make it tonight. Indeed. So, from all of us here in the studio, it is. Time to say goodbye. What are you? What are you doing behind my head? <laughs> I don't like it. I'm gonna I'm quick. I can't find the buttons now. You're putting me off. Uh, from everybody here in the studio, it's time to say goodbye. Say goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>